And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 269 of Panelology. I'm Alex. I'm Brian. And I'm Case. Welcome, Case. Welcome, yes indeed. Case is joining us from Men of Steel and other shows that are not comics related that we will let him name. Uh, he is here this week to talk with us about Heroes Reborn and Heroes Return and is, uh, what is, what is your official title? Supreme Commander of certain POV? I think Darth it, Case? I think it changes for every application that we do. Um, sometimes <laughs> it's co-console. Sometimes it's uh, the guy who just does a bunch of the stuff on the website. Sometimes some, be- some people have called me boss or corporate. Uh, it's all over the place. <laughs> I'm, I, for comics, I'm going to go with a certain POV Supreme Intelligence. <laughs> you know, I like that one, and that fits the uh, kind of role Case is here mm-hmm. for today. Case knows things that we don't, which is not that hard, but at this in this particular case, incredibly relevant. That feels like a lot of pressure, but uh, I, I am a big nerd for things that are from one company that are designed to look like things from another company. <laughs> Yay. Well, also, you read comics in the 90s, which give you a perspective neither of us has. That is true. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That was uh, that, my that's, that's foundational the, that's, period. That's part of my whole, yes. <laughs> Which brings me to our uh, intro question for every first-time guest. How did you get into comics, or broadly, nerdy shit? Uh, so, I, it, honestly, uh, <laughs> comics blur is such a line with, like, kids' cartoons, that that's sort of, like, the, the intro for it. So I was a huge fan of the syndicated 66 Batman uh, which was still like, I think even today you can still like find it if you're like flipping around on channels pretty easily. But when <laughs> I was a kid, it was on all the time and I have no idea what network. Cause I think it was like on, on multiple networks. You could just like find it. Um, and so I was really into that. Uh, my parents were like, well, let's get him this like little like bound book, which was the untold tales of Batman uh, trade paperback, which was like this little digest size black and white. Uh, and that was like my first like, real comic because like i had like some archie stuff before that but uh this was the first time i had like a oh this is the thing i like really from from the tv in my hands uh oh there's so many villains oh cool and uh so also kind of my first trade paperback and then uh yeah i i I got hit by the 90s blitz of like all the different cartoons that they put out you know the batman animated series x-men spider-man all that and that sort of like got me into checking out the comics and i wanted to like know more about all the characters and i like i'm the kind of guy who if you present a thing that has a lot of like backstory and and log and lore to like find out i'm gonna be like oh i need to i need to go find out all the things (laughs) so i I became an avid collector awesome well we are glad to have you with us we have been trying for a while peeking behind the curtain to figure out how does it make sense to get case on here and this seemed like a perfect opportunity to break down Heroes Reborn and Heroes Return and talk about this big, like you said, 
characters from one company looking like characters from another company event. Yeah, I when when I saw that they were rolling out both the name Heroes Reborn, but then also using the Squadron Supreme uh, for it, I got so excited because I, <laughs> I, I love the original Squadron Supreme Maxi series. We just did an episode on Comics Quest where I was talking about it because uh, I stumbled across it in the mid 90s and just completely fell in love with the sort of deconstructionist take on the Justice League. And then when I found out that there were all kinds of weird stories that had very different sort of takes on the characters, I was like, oh, that's really cool because the like the Squadron Supreme kind of just molds to whatever we want to talk about the DC characters in Marvel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and it, what I find so interesting is I mean, there's very clearly always been this back and forth between Marvel and DC, you know, with like, oh, Namor and Aquaman and, you know, the, these characters that are very clearly, at least tangentially, you know, related to, oh, they have an aquatic themed character. We need an aquatic themed character kind of thing. But this is obviously a much more direct, you know, uh, homage um reference i don't know what you want to call it but and it's like to me it's always wild at a certain level that like the only thing that really keeps a distinction in a practical sense between comic book rosters is corporate interests mm -hmm. i.e we have to protect our own royalties and we can't just go our own rights and we can't just go ahead and like share characters willy-nilly and beef between higher-ups in companies who aren't typically the ones even making the books in the position they're in anymore. So, like, for an industry that's built on, like, talent going back and forth between companies and the same brains responsible for properties on both sides of the big two, like, the fact that there's such a big hard wall between them, especially contemporarily, it's always wild to me, right? Like. It's the same people, it's the same kinds of stories. So, like, anytime we get to see, oh, this is the DC flavor of this in Marvel, like, it feels like a natural thing, way more so than it actually gets to be. Yeah. You see that with creator-owned characters, like, um, like Savage Dragon or, like, Hellboy. Like, they're able to move freely between properties. Like, they can pop into, like, an image book or when they do, like, a crossover of Savage Dragon and Superman. It doesn't feel weird because those characters just kind of have, like, their own little pockets that just move with the creator. Like, Mantis was kind of that way back in the 70s until they sort of, like, locked her down more formally. Um, but... I mean, you mentioned beef like beef is the reason the Squadron Supreme exists, because back in <laughs> uh, I think it was like 71 is when they were first rolled out something, something like that. Um, it was actually that the editors at DC and Marvel both wanted to do a crossover fight between uh, the Justice League and Squadron Supreme and the higher up <laughs> said no. And so they quietly did each a respective story that was sort of like mirroring each other. Uh, so the Squadron Sinister showed up there, and that was like the evil version, which is like the core four here. Um, Hyperion, Dr. Spectrum, Nighthawk, and Wizard. Um, and then over on, uh, in a Justice League annual, they had, uh, I think they were called in that one, the Heroes of Angor, but they've also been called the Assemblers, which is where you get like Wangina and Blue uh, Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress. Um, which, so it's, and that's like, a you know, a Thor, uh, <laughs> like Scarlet Witch parallels, <laughs> yeah. like so forth. So it was entirely done in parallel stories in, in the two bit, like the big two at the same time 
to do that kind of matchup. And then since then, they both have just like had these like ripoff characters that whenever they want to do a satirical work about the types of stories the other company has done, it's like, all right, let's do it. Cool. Let's let, let's roll with it. And that, I think, the, oh, I think this is the first time they have they may have been this. um Shall we say blatant with a big like whole event that is kind of revolved around this though? I don't know. There, so like I said, they've done multiple iterations of these of these characters. Yeah. And if you look at J. Michael Straczynski's series from the two thousands that used them, uh, Supreme Power, it's way more blatant because they're is they're it? just they've okay. because they strip away like almost any of the like the particulars of the Marvel stuff and make it just like baby crash lands and then like. Uh, like it's a straight up Superman story. Uh, like the Nighthawk stuff, you see his parents get murdered, which isn't even like how all the other Nighthawks work. Like uh, they, they really right. like lean into it. Just being like, no, we're doing justice okay. league right now. There's no question. We're doing justice. league. <laughs> so what is the original heroes reborn case? Okay. So that's, that's where it gets like kind of weird because the heroes reborn thing is a totally different concept. That is also from the nineties. Uh, so, Back in the nineties, they uh the Marvel comics had become very like artist driven, uh, because you had like a lot of like big popular names that were really driving books. So Rob Liefeld uh uh closed out New Mutants and rebranded it as X Force, and that became the top selling comic of all time to date. And then right after that they launched a new X-Men with Jim Lee, and that became the next top selling one. And I think that still holds the record uh for at least at like week of sales. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. So, and, and, and point, and just to point also that era is what launched the variant cover insanity that we have today. <laughs> right. Oh man. I, I have things to say about that because I have only recently gotten back into buying large amounts of singles and at uh, my Ugh. local comic book store and trying to figure out what the hell book I'm picking up, especially with this line, which has been a nightmare. <laughs> I bought yes. very many, uh, like very many versions of the same issue, uh, on my like first two trips when I was like trying to catch up and I was like, damn it. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so the, the artists like eventually, uh, became sort of like the, the thing sort of wagging the dog at Marvel. Um, but they weren't actually getting that much money for it. And so this led to the image split where the, uh, like a, a lot of the big creators, like Todd McFarlane, like said, Jim Lee, Liefeld, Eric Larson all went off and like did create their own stuff. And that was, not unheard of, but it was unheard of of how successful it was. Um, and so for that was a big shock to the system where all of a sudden there was like an, a viable third party that was putting out comics. Um, Marvel trying to sort of like give their books a shot in the arm after a couple of years of competing with them, uh, reached out to uh, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and had them do their takes at uh, some of the core Marvel properties. The ones that had really sort of fallen by the wayside because at this point, Spider-Man was a big seller. X-Men was a big seller, but like no one read the Avengers. No one read the fantastic four, like no one cared. So they gave them like a year to run these books and it has mixed results. Like it, it usually gets a lot of scorn because it's like, it was a, a chance to imageify like the core Marvel books. Um, and like the, the Rob Liefeld, Captain America pictures that everyone like shows came <laughs> from that era where, you know, like he's clearly do it, like took the picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his like most exaggerated form and like put that on Captain America, uh, kind of stuff. But like, like the Jim Lee Fantastic Four run was pretty good. Basically in the story, uh, those heroes died fighting Onslaught, but they were actually transported to a counter earth by Franklin Richards, 
where they lived out their early days only for them to wake up and then have the Celestials come and decide that Franklin Rick Richards is the peak of human achievement. Uh, our work is done. We need to take him and make him a Celestial. Uh, and all the heroes come back together to fight him, including two Hulks. Uh, Valeria hadn't been born yet, right? Hilaria, Valeria had been born, died, and had not been reborn yet. <laughs> okay, because we all know Valeria's better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can I just take that conversation out of context and just play it for someone not knowing that it's comic books because like, I wish you would. <laughs> oh, it's I, I absolutely insane sounding. <laughs> that's some, that's sort of the best part about like getting really into the minutia of comics, which is when you try to explain a thing and you just pull out like pull back in the details that like normally you would filter yeah. out when you're trying to sound sane. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> It's yes. it's kind of what I love about the whole infinite frontier thing over at DC and everything being canon again. Like, it's impossible to to kind of reconcile all the details. But wasn't that already the case anyway? Like, why did why did Flashpoint and the New Fifty Two struggle so much? It's because internally they couldn't do it. The only right. answer is to say like all of this stuff has happened and just take whatever subset of it matters to you and do what you will with that. Yeah. gather what you will in terms of context about who these characters are from what that mirror says about you right yeah dc you mean like like what you have to do in reality because it all does really exist in there yeah 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 it's 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 that standpoint of trying to have like an in-universe explanation versus sort of taking like taking the step back and being yeah. like oh it's just comics you know like marvel had a like a streamlined continuity sort of uh since its early days and so when they were doing well and DC had to sort of struggle to be like, no, we have multiple earths and like the golden age stuff happened on a different earth. And it's like, um, those kind of splits were often difficult for writers who were used to one or the other. Like, uh, we, ha we had issues with like black canary or like, um, uh, wildcat, for example, where they would try to introduce earth one versions of those characters before yeah. back when it was like, Oh no, that shouldn't be possible. They had to exist mm -hmm. on earth too. Um, and so, when DC tried to streamline it, then they became kind of a little too beholden to having a streamlined continuity. Like if you tried to look up the origin of power girl from the nineties, where they tried to say <laughs> that she is the daughter of an Atlantean sorcerer from the past, uh, instead of a Kryptonian. And she thought she was a Kryptonian because she was sent to the future in a ship that made her think she was Kryptonian. It's hard. It's weird. <laughs> like it's real weird. And it, it messes with your ability to uh, look at a character sanely. <laughs> All right, so here is the thing I have been wondering this entire time reading Heroes Reborn. And we're not going to get into Return yet, since that came out this week. We'll talk about mm -hmm. it sort of standalone, maybe for anyone who hasn't gotten to listen yet. How much does this Heroes Reborn in 2021 share in common with the original 90s Heroes Reborn, beyond the name? I think it's mostly chutzpah. Okay. I like that. Like, That's a good answer. And like, I'm here for that as a reason to take the name. Yeah. I, I think, I think that the name in the nineties is fairly tainted. Um, even though ultimately I think that there were some good things that came out of it. The fantastic four run was pretty good. Um, if you want, like this is what a nineties version of the fantastic four origin looks like. That was pretty good, but there, uh, like it ultimately, it didn't have a lot of impact. Like it only for a few characters, change their status quo for in, in any meaningful way for more than that specific span of the story. And like I said, it's, it kind of is a tainted story. I think I, I walk away from this feeling like they took the name 
the same or for the same reason that Brian Michael Bendis did the clone saga when he was doing Ultimate Spider-Man, which was like, no, we're going to we're going to do it in a way where like people are going to talk about this story and this be the good version of the story. Uh, sort of a reclamation. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, that and that's something Marvel's done a little more of lately, too, like uh, uh Dan Slott in his Spider-Man run in the 616 did do a clone story. Saladin mm-hmm. Ahmed right now is doing a clone saga for Miles. Uh, maybe maybe this is step two after, okay, we've reclaimed clones, what now? Uh, but yeah, it, it does feel like there's this kind of... And maybe it's also a function of writers now read these books as fans, as kids. Or at least when they were younger, right? Like, there are people who are our ages writing comics who would have similar experiences to them or Syrian similar experiences with them as fans who grew up on this and want to say, let me tell my version of this story, right? Like, that makes sense to me. Yeah, this book has a lot of 90s feels going on in it. Um, honestly, looking at it, it feels more like Amalgam than it does the old Heroes Reborn stories. Yeah. Um, particularly one of the first villains we see and one of the first ones they showed off in, like, promotional art, which was Doctor Doom having the Sidorak, uh gym turning him into the Juggernaut, which <laughs> yes. was uh, just like Doctor Doomsday, which was the amalgam of Doomsday and Doctor Doom. Yep. Amazing. So there, there's those yes. kind of vibes. Because, like, what's interesting with this is that it's not, like, it's not just that they're doing the Squadron Supreme, which are very much one-to-one uh, DC analog characters. It's that they're then twisting characters that did not have those kind of connections um, from Marvel into be- filling the holes of the DCU. Uh, and in some cases, there's overlapping ones. Like, for example, the <laughs> the, the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. Gladiator is yes. the, their equivalent of Superboy on that team. So, uh, yeah, I guess he could be Monel in this case, but they also kind of have another Monel, and I always forget his name because he's like a much less important character. But... <laughs> This may be um this may be uh where we mention I I actually and I think Alex uh, you're going to post this right I was about to say yeah, uh, yeah this would be a good time to talk about Brian's uh matrix <laughs> so I have a uh, I have a spreadsheet uh of of all, some of the characters from Reborn basically all of them that I thought had some sort of uh analog in some way. Uh, I think there's like 52 entries on this thing, <laughs> something ridiculous like that. I'm sorry, 59 entries on this thing. Now, to be fair, it does cover more than just characters themselves. In some cases, it's like teams that have team things. Um, I put the fact that, like, I just love this, the fact that th- instead of everything like it always is for Marvel being set in New York, right, it was all set in Washington, D.C., which I yeah. thought was... Uh, I, like, there's no doubt that was a very intentional thing to me. Um, but yeah, then uh, then there's some things that are like items even that like just struck me as, oh, this seems like it's a, uh, a an equivalent thing, sort of. So, um, but even even taking it like a step more meta, Case yeah. mentioned the silver sorceress earlier. Mm hmm. And our Scarlet Witch analog is the Silver Witch here. So, like, yes, there's even a level of let's parody the parody. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And in some cases, it's like insane. Like Gwen Stacy is like part Robin, part Harleen Quinzel, part Batgirl. (laughs) So, yeah, it's 
it, it it's pretty fun. I I do think that I I the, you mentioned um the the Imperial Guard. That one in particular was one that I think you could interpret several ways, right? Like I had Hyperion as Superboy just because obviously he then it still continues as the Superman parallel, which means that I put uh um Gladiator Gladiator as I put him as Cosmic Boy. Like as kind of an original founding, you know, with the same kind of power set. But uh, yeah, but uh, anyway, I like I just had an absolute blast going through and trying to uh, to put some of these together. Some of them, I'll be honest, some of them I didn't find. I, I know they had an intentional reference and I it just didn't click with me as to what that might be. One of those examples is. um uh, Final Flight, right? Which obviously is Alpha Flight from Marvel. But like, I was trying to think of who from DC, what team that would correlate to, and it, nothing. I mean, you could make maybe a, a limited Justice League Canada argument, like under the worst possible circumstances, the short-lived Jeff Lemire series, Justice League Canada. <laughs> okay, um, I'll be honest. I don't even know if I knew that existed. <laughs> To be fair, I think it was actually released as Justice League International after being announced as Justice League Canada, ah, but then okay. got variants that called it Justice League Canada on the cover. Kind of like the uh, uh, Doctor Strange Tar Nation variant. Oh, got it. Got a few it. years okay. ago. Um, my favorite thing on this list is just Max Lord, question mark, question mark, <laughs> next to Phil Coulson. Yes. Yeah, there's some of these I'm like, okay, maybe this is just my own personal take on this. So I'll, I'm going to put some question marks on here because, eh, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like Phil Coulson, like that just seemed like a very Max Lord analog care. Like that's exactly what Max Lord would do, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, especially the, uh, okay, let me deal with my two secretaries here. Uh <laughs> Or my my uh what what vice was vice president and uh and chief of staff I chief think. of or staff no, uh, press press secretary, press secretary. That that's what he was, was yeah. yeah yeah like I have to imagine that some of the conversation that they're trying to have in the the series overall is the the weird shape that DC fandom has taken since the movies have become a thing. Uh, oh, yeah, that's... Yeah. And I have to wonder if Coulson sort of plays like the Max Lord of Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. Like, life is good, but it could be better, which is... We haven't talked much about 1984 on here. I think, honestly, I am hesitant to, because I'm not a fan of it, and I try not to be negative. But it is wild to me that the one thing from that movie that is sort of stuck in the public consciousness is that line, which is, I think, the entire thing the movie is trying to reject. Which is? Uh, life is good, but it could be better. Oh, yeah, okay. Like, yeah. that sort of 80s excess greed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. My, my, my two-cent opinion, like, super short take is I liked a lot of the elements of it. I don't like how it was put together, but that's... Basically same. Yeah. 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 It's kind of why it's frustrating because like you can see all the things that should have clicked yeah. better but it didn't quite yeah. fit. Yeah. But I like your read that part of this is a conversation with that. Because it makes a lot of sense and it makes a lot of sense in terms of I think you see that blow back and you especially in like internet discourse which is never the world's healthiest thing to spend too much time thinking about. Uh, unless it's, I don't know, your job and you're getting paid well and have good work-life balance as a result. But, like, 
I think there's an expectation that is created of DC characters that's not really true of DC characters in the comics. Like The gulf between those movies and what you read on the page, they might as well be different characters sometimes. Yeah, which the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at least the characters are recognizable when you go read them in the comics, I think, from their, from their movie counterparts. Yeah, that was kind of the selling I point of the MCU when it rolled out. Yeah. Like, up until that point, you know, we had the, the black leather suit X-Men. Like, it felt similar enough, but it, there was, like, key differences from what was being put out on the newsstands. Uh, and then Mar mm -hmm. Iron Man came out, and his armor was, like, the spitting image of what it looked like in the comics at the time. And, you know, you had a Robert Downey Jr. playing a take on Tony Stark, but like a take that was like, yeah, it felt it felt right. And it was charming and it worked like if a writer had written that exact version of Tony Stark in an arc of a comic, you would have been like, yeah, OK, that's Tony. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what what really struck me about watching that movie in theaters was like a year earlier, they aired an animated Iron Man movie on Cartoon Network. And it felt uh, maybe a little less of a, a jerk, but it felt very much like the Tony Stark in that movie, right? Yeah. Like, I, I remember sitting through the first Iron Man and thinking, this is super cool to see live action. I kind of feel like I watched this movie a year ago on Cartoon Network. <laughs> and I think there's something good about that. Like, I think there's value in that. You You have sort of the prototype there or the sort of parallel to it. Here's the version for kids. And then the, we're going to put this in movie theater and an adult can sit and watch it and take every bit as much from it, right? Like, there's value in that ubiquity. I also want to mention while we're here and having this conversation, Batman Superman number 19 this week, written by Gene Lun Yang, uh, went in a direction I totally did not expect and actually opened this conversation about uh, taking comic continuity and using it as fodder to create this perfect engineered universe that is built on horror and atrocity and created this really meta conversation in a way I did not expect and I adored it I don't want to don't want to go too far in the weeds on it because I'm the only one of the three of us who's read it but uh it was an incredible issue and fits I think in this conversation at the moment. Yeah, it's it's crazy to look at, at comics in general and just know how long they've been going. But more importantly, now we're almost at the point where we we are as as long deconstructing comics as we were in the initial construction phase. You know, we are now 40 yeah. years out from Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. Uh, and so yeah. and and from Squadron Supreme, because the, the Mark Grunewald maxi series came out in like 90 or 80, early 84, 85. And that was like seen as sort of like the start of this sort of like well comics are established we understand what comics are we understand the universes they have let's play with it and sort of like extrapolate from there like that run i think has a lot of parallels to what is currently going on in the x-men books like all of the the world that we're creating where we say all right here's all of our established continuity and all of our abilities to do crazy things how do we then take that further and show how that has an impact on society that's that has been a part of comics now for half of its existence as as a medium, and this is <laughs> I mean yeah that started in the late eighties right? yeah oh well, I mean really like I said really the early eighties with 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 Squadron Supreme and well, then going that's true. into yeah into that's fair that's fair um, and you look at this 
And the story that they're trying to tell here is about a young fan trying to reset everything to the sort of jingoistic 1960s Silver Age style and also at the same time exposing how terrible that could be. Like the the most shocking thing for me reading this was the the issue that had Dr. Spectrum as the focus because oh my uh, God. he is yeah. terrible in this. But I loved that character back in the day and <laughs> because that character – actually went through change like he had become a pacifist because he accidentally killed someone in a fight and said and would not do any sort of violent actions in combat like only he would only do like barriers to separate people and things like that like wouldn't actually engage in fights anymore because he had seen the ramifications of his actions um roll that back to a 60s hal jordan like airplane man you know like hot shot kind of guy who is all about like no i'm gonna you know kill anyone who's brown for america and like then put that in outer space like that's that's the conversation we're having where it's just like oh yeah all these archetypes that we used to do in the 60s and say like yeah it's true just in the american way how far can you push that when you start to question how good the american way really is well and Mm -hmm. it also it also then rises as a challenge to the well, comics weren't political back when I was a kid, dude bros. No, I, I'll i be honest. I can tell you 100% what has changed then. And it's 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 the scope of our awareness, quite honestly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can tell you that the world, your world back then was not global. Your world was at the largest, the United States. Like that was, that was like the biggest thing you thought of um and mostly honestly it was just your your city like where you lived and you know you go back like to the 1800 like to the turn of the century and obviously that world was even smaller right and my point being that the scope of your awareness has changed drastically from the 60s and 70s to today like today we are all always aware of what's going on globally and I think and there's like, a... that's our world. And, 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 and that changes your perspective about how you look at things. There's a corollary to that, too. That is communication technologies being what they are. It is possible to develop and spread vocabulary yes. in a way that you couldn't before. The conversations that we can have publicly with at least some awareness. Yes, there's a lot of bad misinformation and sure. disinformation. But about issues like not just sexuality, but gender identity. Those conversations among lay people were nascent a decade ago. Yeah. Like if you were not a member of an LGBTQ plus community, you probably didn't have that vocabulary. Correct. So like it's not the comics that, that needed to grow up. It's the world around the world outside their window. <laughs> Well, my point being that it's why you had those archetypes that were considered, you know, fine for then. And I say fine for then, meaning that the people that read them, you know, if you only applied that to your world, your world at the time, there didn't seem to be anything wrong with them. Looking back, knowing, like I said, having a larger picture now, clearly that is a very limited view. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's get into the 2021 Heroes Reborn and Heroes Return. Um, Case, you have mentioned Dr. Spectrum is standing out to you, and you've mentioned the Imperial Guard. What are some other pieces of this? Uh, Because Brian and I have had 
two months to talk about a lot of this. What are some other pieces of this that really either just amused you or stood out as clever to you or just you thought were really well-crafted? Uh, so from a, will, a well-crafted standpoint, uh, the Savage Squadron surprised me incredibly yeah. when I read it. And same, uh, not just in how uh, ultimately how, how brutal the issue was, but in how well it tied back to earlier applications of the characters. Um, so a big thing in the original Maxi series that sort of cemented the like what we think of when we talk about the squadron was that when when they took over America to try to turn it into a utopia in that series, they decided to do away <laughs> with the death penalty and in favor of developing behavior modification devices. And so that became a big talking point in that because ultimately that it was terrible. And everyone by the end of it is like, oh, God, we're monsters. Um, this really doubles doubles down on it. It really like explores <laughs> in creative ways like what you can do with that two characters in a comic series and in a way that you couldn't in an ongoing, like if this wasn't part of an event that was going to be reset at the end of it all, like I, you, what we can't live in that world. Like we can't have superheroes exist that way without it devolving into a true dystopia. Uh, and, and everyone knows that except Maria Hill. Apparently. <laughs> right. So that one shocked me just because it was so well done in terms of taking an existing part of this, which was acknowledged as like one of the controversial in-universe things that were going on and like really like sort of expanding that to our sort of like post 9-11 kind of sense of things like where we understand like oh yeah the government's going to torture people and do terrible things and like that's not good like you can't just back it like you know back in the day it was like very common to have like john f kennedy show up in in a superman comic because he was the president <laughs> uh, and now we're we're pulling back on those kind of ideas because oh god even the ones who aren't necessarily bad people okay bad things being done and i felt like that issue was like our best commentary on all of that like the the sort of like the the wet work side of uh government actions that we are aware exist um sometimes like to glorify but also we should acknowledge can be pretty heinous yeah that i did not know that that had roots in sort of the original concept but i i i am with you on everything like i think that issue is there are some others that i i, I would sit there and let maybe fight out for the the favorite tie-in spot uh the the star jammers backup alone maybe uh uh that whole issue is great but just that backup like that's the thing that the most left me wanting more of a certain piece of this but this one, I think, probably is, if you only read one, like, read this one tie-in. Yeah. Um, Magneto and the Mutant Force struck me because, uh, so, I, I was a big fan of the, the Exiles comic back in the day, which also loved their Squadron Supreme stuff. Uh, and I, <laughs> I really enjoyed all that. And I had this whole idea of, like, if I ever worked at Marvel, this is what I would do for a story. And it's very similar in a lot of ways to the initial premise of the Heroes Reborn universe. Uh, it it did not have the the crazy jingoistic America rah rah aspect, <laughs> but it was going to have like a lot of like Marvel stuff, like uh like the actual Marvel stuff inter intermixed with the Squadron stuff because they they weren't like Namor is here, but they're like they have their own Aquaman equivalent. There's Amphibian. Uh, they like they had their own like they didn't share characters the way this universe does. Um, and I wanted to do mm -hmm. a thing like that. And so I was like, all right, cool. How would I work the X-Men? And it's actually very similar because uh, it's going to be Magneto <laughs> leaving them. Um, but the thing I wanted to call out that I thought was amazing is that 
Rogue having the powers from Super Scroll happened in Exiles. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So Nocturne, the daughter of Nightcrawler and Scarlet Witch from a different reality, uh, when we got to see her world, which is set, which is like forward in time, like 15 years or so, because again, like teenage daughter of existing superheroes, uh, Mm-hmm. In that world, they had a rogue who had pulled from the squad or from a super scroll. And I thought like, oh, that's really clever because like they're doing like, oh, she pulled powers from a different alien empowered like super being type thing. Like, that's really cool. Right. And then it's like, OK, we'll p- port it back to Skymax, the Skrullian Skymaster. Also works really well here. <laughs> great. Great. <laughs> right. Didn't pull from a Kree, pulled from Skrull. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that different. they have formally just sort of taken the blur as the name for the character now. Uh, so. When when it was all created, it was the Wizard, which was a reference to the 1940s Wizard, which was a, a Mar- like Marvel's Flash uh, in the Golden Age of comics, mm-hmm. uh, who was also like a yellow, like yellow black with like blue highlights kind of superhero. So it it looked like a nice little update to it. The same way that like the Crime Syndicate's Johnny Quick is an update to like Johnny Quick, the Golden Age speedster. Uh, you know, just like kind of fun nods because all of these people are nerds and i love them for it <laughs> uh but when you got to the 2000s run the supreme power run i mentioned with straczynski uh, they took the blur name and that was then a nod to the 1980s new universe comic series uh which was sort of an attempt at being like all right well what if we take the world as it is right now outside your door and superpowers are just now introduced uh and that's where we right. get the star brand for the first time and uh they had mm-hmm. a speedster called uh the blur who his big deal was that you could barely keep focused on him because he was always moving so fast that he was a blur. And he had, to, it was like one of the first times where they were like, okay, he has to eat a ton of food and he has to sleep at weird intervals. He had, like all the, all the things that like a crazy metabolism could do, but they had just never explored with the flash. Uh, that was that character. And so interestingly, so that was an African-American character. And then the one in Supreme Power was also African-American because they oh, that's where also where Kyle Richmond uh, went from being just Bruce Wayne to being Bruce Wayne, but black. Um, and I was like, all right, cool. That, that, that works there. And then but now they've like ported that name into modern adaptations of the character. And I, I feel like we're going to keep seeing the character will as the blur instead of wizard because wizard is just a really hard name to yeah. say with a straight face. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think they used the blur name in the Hickman Avengers, new Avengers run as well. Cause the squadron characters show up in new Avengers. And I think, I think they used the blur there too. I don't think they used wizard. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Wizard is a hard name to, <laughs> to say with a straight yeah. face. Like I said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the the other option is that the the original appearing wizard, the one from the Squadron Sinister, which uh came first in publishing, supposedly were created by the Grandmaster as copies of the alternate reality heroes, the Squadron Supreme comics. Uh, <laughs> he's now the Spider-Man villain speed demon. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah. and I love that name, but I understand being like, all right, well, that's the villain. We're not gonna have the hero have the same name. Yeah. We'll make them separate characters. Um Power Princess surprised me a bit in this. How so? Uh, so from a design standpoint, love it. I, I think, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about Wonder Woman Black and Gold. I think that they have really nailed making a character look just like Wonder Woman without necessarily having all of the old patriotic details that used to be part of it. Like her having kind of just a dark color scheme within gold accents works amazingly well for selling the character. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's so, so Hyperion originally was an Eternal. And Power Princess was an Inhuman. Uh, that Utopia Isle was like their version of the 
of the Inhumans. It was their version of Adelon. Um, and that that was her care. She was just the only one to stay when they when as the Inhumans are wont to do left Earth because they, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they they were scared of us and dropping nuclear bombs on them because humans are kind of crazy. I've been on Earth for 34 years. I, I would leave if I could. So it's interesting to kind of tie this character back more into mythology. Like that was sort of a weird kind of pivot because she was sort of like a sci-fi version of Wonder Woman, which was like fun mm -hmm. back in the day. The thing I thought was like very good for this book is they brought back a thing that they'd kind of dropped over the years, which was um, when Power Princess was created, Wonder Woman could not fly in the comics. She had she could glide and she had the invisible right. jet. And so the way they got around that is that she had a transparent invisible shield that she could hold on to and fly with it, um, which I always thought was great. I always wanted Captain America at some point to use it as a thing um, in this. She's got her <laughs> invisible sword. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's a really in this grim version of the character, which feels like the conversation we have about Wonder Woman in the movies now like all the people who were upset that 84 Wonder Woman wasn't using a sword and shield. And instead she was using her lasso. Like this feels like the character for that. Yeah. Are we ready to talk about heroes return? Yeah, yeah. let's do that. So this is our, the team is back together issue. Uh, we, we get the unsurprisingly the, the end of the heroes reborn continuity and the return to the regular six, one, six with, I'd say some surprising moments in there. There, are, I, I would say there are two things that change that are um, significant. Right? Before we get to the 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 consequences, though, like just how mm -hmm. did everybody enjoy the first half of this? The the Avengers versus Squadron. I mean, I'm always here for a Hyperion versus Thor fight. Like that's <laughs> that. Yeah, that was that. That was it. That was this was just our fight book, right? Basically, yeah. I enjoyed it. I think the one thing that. Um, makes it a little little weird to talk about is that the power scale for some of these characters aren't well established in this universe like this dr spectrum is way more powerful than we've seen dr spectrums in the past and cool i i i like that he probably is the only one that had like a big grudge match but i couldn't quite tell where he stood versus uh the star brand the others like this Hyperion doesn't have a lot of issues with this Thor. Uh, maybe the Phoenix with power princess. The only thing that kind of bugged me was just like, uh, there's not like, while these are violent characters who are serving the literal devil, like, I don't know why captain America wouldn't try to talk to them first. That's fair. That's, yeah. that's fair. Uh, there were a couple of details I liked. One was the way we worked in Carol Danvers. That was good, yeah. She's there, she's flying, and she still gets a heroic moment despite not having that history in a way that's set up back in the first issue. Uh, I also like the idea of Vibranium as Kryptonite. Yeah, that amused that was me. Cool. Um, other than that, to me, the star of most of this is just Baby Starbrand. Yeah. <laughs> baby Starbrand hey, raised by she's Rocket. Not a, she's not a baby anymore now. Young, young child Starbrand. Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, Somewhere, somewhere like toddler Starbrand and toddler Valyria just like hang out and compare notes about space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, one of the things you were talking about, and I think that's part of it, is even particularly like the Starbrand and the Phoenix in particular, right? Those two power sets have always been 
kind of defined at the whim of the writer, right, as far as power levels. So, you know, you just take them in the story that they are for whatever level the writer appears to give them. <laughs> yeah, and it's fair. Like, they all have sort of similar sources to in that, you know, a lot of the, the cosmic human gets a weapon that get, allows them to, you know, travel with the gods kind of stuff goes back, you know, through Green Lantern back to, like, the Lensman stuff. Uh, or like the Lindsman novels from the fifties, um, which I only just made the connection in my head, or maybe I made it before and forgot that like, Oh, power print or uh, Dr. Spectrum has a power prism because he's also a not a knockoff of a Lindsman, uh, where it's like, Oh, here's our gym that we focus all of our power through. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what I really would have liked was like a switch up at some point. Everyone kind of like has their sparring partner and that's it for the issue. Uh, and it would have been nice to see sort of more of like a team kind of thing one way or the other. Like these these Avengers don't actually know how to work together. So it'd be nice if like the squadron was a little bit better at it or something like that. Yeah. Although, to be fair, it didn't seem like in any of these books, the squadron ever really liked working together all that much. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I also wonder if part of the the why aren't they. Why doesn't Steve talk? Why don't why don't we get those dynamics? I wonder if we're still not at the end of the story. I, I mean, I think in in specific ways for individual characters, there are questions left open for different squadron members here. To varying degrees, they do or don't remember this reality. Yeah. And that sort of affects where they'll be at in continuity. But I wonder if we're still building to a moment of team up a moment of the squadron and the avengers find themselves on the same side in aaron's avengers run writ large and i say that because like there's a lot of geopolitical intrigue in the book i mean the avengers roster is seen as apolitical or in in colson and general ross's purview like because black panther leads it they see it as a wakandan team We've seen European teams, Atlantean teams, Russian teams. Mm-hmm. The squadron outside of this continuity was an American team that Coulson was already running. I, I would argue within this continuity, too. Well, yes, but prior to it already. <laughs> yes, yes. This was kind of a turning the dial up on that. And I, I think maybe we're starting to see the shape of what does the last act of this Avengers run look like as we talk about consequences, because... Well, we have most of the Avengers of 1 million BC's modern counterparts together now. Um, But we also have Hyperion looking for these elements of a life that he's lost, that he misses. We have the Blur, uh, who apparently doesn't exist. Nobody in this continuity knows who he is. They've never heard of him. He's just a government prisoner. Uh, Nighthawk basically says that the the Heroes Reborn universe wasn't a mistake, and I will fix this and make it right again. Yep. And then we get uh, well, Starbrand is still around. We we have the one thing that has changed as a result is is Starbrand is still aged up and still was raised by Rocket Raccoon. Yes, and which very angry. Again, things that I would read a whole series of Rocket Raccoon Raising a Child. Yeah. There's just something great um, about a child with a potty mouth. Like, it's amazing. 
I mean, I need, okay, this is one of my favorite things about this, is just the ability with which this puts ideas for weird continuity moments that I feel must have happened in this world, or will happen in this world if it hadn't gone away. Uh, and that is, at some point, Rocket and Baby Starbrand have to have fought uh, uh, Cosmic Ghost Rider and Baby Thanos. At some point, this has to have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course it did. To the point that, like, I still kind of need that to happen at some point. That and the Star Jammers going forward, but yes. <laughs> uh, and then our, 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 our end reveal here, and if you haven't read this and don't want this spoiled, go ahead and jump forward. Yeah. Which, uh, by the way, is something I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> is this. Uh... If you have been watching, let's say, MCU TV shows and waiting for a certain villain to make his appearance, I have good news for you in the pages of this book. <laughs> you get 616 of them. Yeah. I bet they find 50 more somewhere. Uh, we have lots of Mephistos. Oops, all Mephistos. All the Mephistos. And here is my question. Is it Mephist Ham or Hamfisto? <laughs> oh, it has to be Hamfisto. I, I, I was going to say Mepigsto. Mepigsto is very good and definitely less, uh, less prone to, uh, I don't know, showing up on seedier parts of the internet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I always love a. Ugh. Let's have a bunch of different reality versions of a character for the sake of like a spread and seeing how many creative weird twists you can do on it uh from a design point mm -hmm. yeah like anytime you get multiversal versions of the same character i'm always so here for it i also love the little nod to hail the council of red as a reference to like the council of reeds yeah. in fantastic oh, yeah. four uh even even then we're still getting our little analogies to to other elements of comics that and then i think i, I think i do like that one of the mephistos is literally just a hellhound <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like maybe the one in charge in fact could be but yeah like uh, this both terrifies me and excites me for future things yes yeah having another hyperion kind of just out there in the world is interesting um like i said there have been a lot of hyperions at this point and uh it seems that recent big avengers runs have really enjoyed incorporating a version into it. Um, the Hickman run had a different version of Hyperion, who was a hero and joined the team. Um, and going back to the 90s, like there was a bunch of uh, Squadron Supreme stuff in Kurt Busiek's run. Uh, just interesting where like we really wanted to have conversations about Superman. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and even Bendis had like all the, the, uh, the Sentry stuff, which is doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, and I think like to your point about this is a conversation about a very specific moment in history. I don't think you can talk about comics and the role of, like, American exceptionalism in them without talking about Superman every bit as much as Captain America. Like, yeah. there are two different pieces of that conversation that I think are integral to it. Yeah, I mean, let's let's face it. If there's one character, if you said you have one character in all of comic existence that you can use to make... To, to discuss real world issues like Superman is the obvious choice for so many reasons to me. Like there's so many different 
aspects that you can look at it, whether it's political or power levels or relation to humanity or, you know, being non-human and how that, you know, how that makes him different and like all the different things you could talk about. Uh, he seems a very obvious character to me. Yeah. Any last thoughts on Heroes Return or Heroes Reborn or anything else about this event? Uh, no, I, I would say it was, in my opinion, it was a fun contained event that provided a lot to, uh, you know, to kind of have fun with as far as that. And then, you know, you know at the end that it's pretty much going to be undone, which is perfectly fine if you know what you're getting into with an event going into yeah, it. Yeah, like I mean, yeah. I think the premise promises that, and it sort exactly. of reaffirms that this like very limited interference weekly event series works mm -hmm. really well yeah. when it's we've talked uh, about that so many times implemented yeah. smartly. Yeah, that that if you're doing something like this, you need to do it weekly and get it over with. In my opinion, yeah. Again, I I really feel it. It's a lot like those old fifth week events, like Amalgam or like Tangent, um, where they would mm -hmm. do totally outside of our normal continuity kind of like let's let's have fun with like all the all the nerd things and and play with it. Like the, looking at this property in general, you can see all the swirling ideas of like, all right, well, I want to do an Arkham Asylum story. How can I do that at Marvel? Like what characters can I do yeah. pull for it? Like <laughs> if I want to do like, if what would be a creative way to do like a doomsday? Okay. Let's do weapon X. All right. <laughs> like working with all of that together um, to have this kind of like little, like here's a, here's a quick boom. You, you, you got a bunch of fun ideas and we're given yeah. uh, like a lot of writers and artists a chance to just sort of play and be creative in a space that we're, or with a, like a framework that like works for everyone. Uh, that was all great. I wish they wouldn't have so many variant covers or at least have it, <laughs> at least have the covers <laughs> say what issue they're supposed to be of things. Cause a bunch of them didn't say what comic it was. And so when I was like trying to make sure I didn't miss yeah. any, I grabbed a bunch yeah, of yeah. ones that were just like blade super villain. Uh, and it was like, Oh shit. That was actually also issue one. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, action figure variants i know through a lot of people because you had like heroes reborn and then the logo for that character's name underneath mm -hmm. yeah so it was like heroes reborn hyperion then no, that's just heroes reborn number one it's not another right. one shot. like they almost got me and like i had already been warned by people these covers get really confusing before i walked into the comic shop that day like it's that part is a little buck wild. Yeah, I don't mind variant covers. I mind it where they didn't put sufficient labeling on it that you'd have to like crack open and read a bunch of pages to be like, oh no, these are the same pages as the, the pages on this other yeah. issue. Yeah, it's like there was one week, well, there in the last two months, there have been three weeks where Diamond did not get the books to my comic shop on time. So like they were trying to get things on shelves on Wednesday or even Thursday. And like they were in such a rush that they didn't always have the time to catch oh this is a variant like let's set it in the same stack as heroes reborn number five not next to it right right all right on to mm -hmm. other things yeah N ninjack number one uh we got an advanced copy of this uh the book itself will be out on july 14th i think we're past foc but i'm sure that like probably if you reach out to your comic shop or uh pre-order a copy online you can still get your hands on it uh this is written by jeff parker with art and co colors by javier polito 
Letters by Dave Sharp with Javier Polito. And it's really fucking good, guys. Yeah, I, I like I knew the name Ninjak, but probably more from like pictures in Wizard magazine back in the 90s. Like, I don't think I've ever actually <laughs> read a Ninjak book before. Uh, and I very much enjoyed this. And this was a good like, if you don't know anything about what we're talking about, this is a good explanation of most of what we're going to talk about in this book. Yeah, I I don't have a super deep history with Valiant. I've I've actually gotten into reading more in the last two or three years. I think that there was a conscious effort recently to to recognize, okay, we we relaunched at the beginning of the twenty tens with this idea that everything's connected and you can read a few titles at a time and get a full continuity. But after a few years of that, like even that is prohibitive to bringing in new readers and this very much feels like maybe the first ninjack book to really effectively pull off here's a clean starting point this is probably the character i've been most interested in in valiant and like checking out like ninjack and archer and armstrong were probably the two who are like i have heard they are consistently funnier books or at least a little lighter in tone and more my speed so i am glad i am glad that i loved this as much as i did i was gonna say as much as we talked about continuity that's that's kind of that was kind of the the whole selling point of valiant right was that it was going to be a consistent ongoing continuity that did not you know that always worked was the idea behind it anyway and i think they still preserve that there are clearly references in this to things that have happened to why ninjack status quo is what it is right now but I don't feel at a loss for not having read the books that led to that. What is your, do you have any history with Valiant case? I know prior to the last few years, I have none. In passing, um, when I was young, the biggest way I would get, particularly back issues, was a a bookstore uh, that I would visit in the summer that had like 50 cent, just random books. Um, and so I would pick up every now and then like random dark horse and valiant books just because the covers were good. And, uh, like I said, it was cheap. (laughs) Um, but you know, it it would be like random issue of like solar man of the atom. There's not a lot of like real experience, like exposure besides like general familiarity with the properties. Gotcha. I'm a big fan of Jeff Parker's writing. Uh, he did some time on Aquaman in the, the new 52 near the end, I think between, I think he took over for Jeff Johns and wrote until Colin Bunn took over. And that run was really solid. He did some of the Batman 66 uh, digital first comics for DC. Uh, Those were so much fun. So, like, I was excited for him. Javier Pulido, I love on She-Hulk. And I think his layouts and line work and just the way he uses space and movement truly steal the show in this book oh yeah they make it into what it is because it's like what like two or three pages in, you get that like big diagonal two-page spread and yeah it was such a cool format for it like um you're absolutely right that the the way that they structure the story in terms of like the literal like arrangement of panels was like one of the most compelling things like it kept feeling like uh you were like cutting through stuff like like it was a here's your story and here's a katana blade going through it (laughs) yeah exactly like it has it has that sort of angular motion right like it feels like 
even a scene sitting in a bar where two talk, literally they're talking heads that are like divided on a page with other people talking around them. And then, you know, a couple repetitions of the heads, like even that talking head scene feels active and chaotic and ultimately like kind of the world is melting around them. Even still with like these stock straight lines, a lot of what really makes it, I think feel flexible despite some really structured layouts is how inky and shadowy like most pages are limited color palette and really heavy shadow ninjack feels like he's made out of shadow when you see him in costume like i love the style of it it says so much about the tone they're going for and the world it's set in and it helps sell everything that's going on and feel active even when it's just conversation as much so as a sword fight or a fist fight or whatever because of just the way that it so cannily moves the eye around the page. Like, it's so intentional in focusing. Polito knows where he wants the reader to look. Yeah, definitely a treat to, like, look at. And again, like, I wasn't that familiar with the character. Uh, it, it definitely felt like I was being guided to the, the key points that we needed to see to, to, like, follow through the issue. And, yeah, I mean, it's a visual medium. Like, it, it really sold it. Yeah. Uh, I, I cannot recommend this enough. Brian, I'm going to yell at you. You need to buy it and read it. We need to be able to talk about it on the show. All right. All right. Add it, add it to the list of things that, that I yell at you about reading. Yeah. Uh, how many things are on that list now? <laughs> no more than anyone else I know who lets me yell at them about reading comics. <laughs> yeah. I'll have it Alex has his own Matrix spreadsheet of, that, of all that the things to yell have. at you about. That's right. I uh, <laughs> had the conversation with JD in Discord the other day about, uh, they mentioned needing to get a Marvel Unlimited subscription. I'm like, yes, do you know how much cheaper being friends with me is if you do that? <laughs> well, he doesn't have an excuse. Can I got him a tablet. So. <laughs> Can confirm. Uh, definitely check out Ninjack. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Black Hammer Reborn number one. Brian, Case, since we haven't talked at all about pastiche and parody of superhero <laughs> concepts. Yeah, no kidding, right? Tell me about Black Hammer Reborn. Uh, I will say, as much as we have talked about that, and absolutely as much as that is the 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 roots and origins of of the Black Hammer universe, uh, one of the things that's really cool about this one is it it separates itself from that. Um, I think Case mentioned right before we started the show, uh, it it is set like twenty years after kind of the end of of what we have known as continuity for Black Hammer so far. Um, and doing that allows this story to be new and different and not tied to, I mean, obviously the history, the continuity is there, but it's not directly, you know, uh, having an impact on, on what this story is going to be, I think. Yeah. Like the, the original black hammer run was defined by this like core mystery that was like besetting the heroes yeah. in it. And it made it difficult if you weren't finished with like the key stuff and like, uh, to read like spinoff books that they would do because it was still so interconnected with it all. Like it, it it's why like if you read like the the Justice League Black Hammer crossover, like there's some weird beats in there that uh, where they're like tr purposely trying not to spoil some of the details that like you have to read like like get to like volume three of the original book. Um, this successfully divorces 
all of that mystery from the current run so that you can go back and read that and really appreciate it. But they have like a one panel of like, it's a long story. Don't worry about it in it, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. was refreshing to have because like that's this means that this is a new start for the series, even if we're still playing with the same toys. So do you think and I, I think that panel probably answers the question. If someone wanted to come to Black Hammer without having read everything or being behind, like, is this a good jumping on point? Can you say, yes. start at Reborn and then catch up later whenever? 100%. Yeah. Yes. A- aside from a yeah. minor spoiler that a character gets powers at a certain point, it's not a, like, you're not going to be really ruined. And that only, like I said, it's a minor spoiler. It doesn't ruin the actual yeah, story that it, you're reading. It's it's not a big shock either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's very, very predictable reading through the original. Yeah. If it's if it's the character I assume it is, then yeah, that sort of felt like a foregone conclusion in a way in the original. Like you were kind of counting down to that. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And, and I gotta say, speaking of variant covers, uh, this one had one of the best variant covers uh, of <laughs> of my recent purchases, which is the the one I picked up was a nod to the first appearance of Beta Ray Bill uh, from Thor. It is beautiful <laughs> uh, with uh, the the modern Black Hammer smashing the the logo itself with the hammer. Uh, I was so thrilled to see that. <laughs> I uh yeah. I picked up a variant to Superman black white and or no red white red, red, red and blue, blue yeah. that's the uh a, a variant to Superman red and blue whatever the last issue was number four I think that Walt Simonson drew and it was modeled on that same Beta Ray Bill cover and it had the best like you know how when an artist does an homage they'll do such and such with their signature and then after whoever they're modeling it after this was just Simonson. After me. <laughs> After me. <laughs> yes. Like dork. Adorable dork. Yeah. I, I do love I do love some some fun there's a couple of fun little nods in here. Like there's one point where she's fighting, you know, fighting somebody on a city street and there's a cinema in the background and it's now playing Gideon Falls. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I mean looking at it like the the art style is now updated to look like a modern comic whereas the previous ones because mm-hmm. it was a period piece had design elements that were supposed to look like kind of like a thing from the 80s which is when it was set. So it's nice to see that they're being conscious again like a lot of comics because we've grown up with them and they've existed so long the writers are having conversations metatextually about the nature of comics and this is one that is now about now progressing to a, a more modern kind of book. Yep. I think the story is going to be that too, definitely. I think so, yeah, because we find out that there are like consequences for being a superhero that uh, are being explored in this book. Yes. Cool. Let's talk about Action Comics 1032. We had our main feature in this one, World War World Rising Part 3, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art by Daniel Samperi, colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, so, Case, did you get a chance to catch up on, like, all of the Infinite Frontier stuff, or did you just hop in with this this issue? So, I, when we first talked about me coming on for the wrap-up of Heroes Reborn, I made a concerted effort to stop letting my, my comics pile up and being months... <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not even at Future State at this point in my, like the backlog of comics that I have, but I just said, all right, so I'm going to just start like, I'm just going to read what I have. And like, it's fine. 
back in the day, I didn't care about reading every issue in order. So why should I now? Uh, so I've been reading action <laughs> and uh, a bunch of these other books for the last couple months. So I am at cool. least caught up enough there. I have been enjoying this sort of like, what are they? Are, is this an offshoot Kryptonian race thing? Um, and that's what I was like really here for. Um, yeah, I, I love the mystery and lore that we're getting in action. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about that. I love Mongol. I'm I'm so excited to do a Mongol story. Always, every time they do it, <laughs> I've always been so so on Mongol. I love what Johnson is doing with him here. I think as sort of like cult of personality leader, that is fantastic and terrifying and very contemporary. I also love the 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 way that he writes Lois in here. We see her researching, and here we see her as, like, compassionate in a way that Superman isn't because he is worried. Yeah. Like, her as sort of a compliment to him, taking this almost more nurturing role so he can solve this mystery is, I think, not a take we get to see often on Lois, and I really like exploring her that way. Yeah, there was a good scene where Superman kind of second guesses how he, or, or like, um like Monday morning quarterbacks, like how he handled the situation uh, and is like a little like upset at himself. And like, it was, it was very nice seeing them sort of like play off each other because like in the, like my day to day life, I often do that where I'm like, I handled that wrong. And I'll like talk to my partner about it. And like, uh, yeah, you know, it felt very, it felt very of a couple. And the best Superman moments to me are those like just really normal human moments. So getting that, moment from him but also seeing how other people support him in that moment that is always like the most the most efficient gas in the tank yeah. when you're writing can, superman for me can i ask a uh a more general question here so i know it's been it's been a while now right that lois in some sort of continuity fashion has known that clark is superman yeah uh, uh, am i the only one who thinks she has become a much better character since that has happened. I I think definitely because it gives yeah. her more agency. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Lois having this knowledge one feels truer to the character. It's mm -hmm. it's hard to buy the the old Lois and Clark line uh with the glasses Clark Kent Superman Clark Kent Superman it's true what they say about you you are galactically stupid. Like that it's a funny line and I actually know that actor. He's from my hometown and like directs in the community theater that I used to work in. Um but it never felt like Lois, that that idea, right? Like Lois is smarter. Lois might know and never say, but Lois isn't going to not know. Right. And the idea of Lois always having to be saved is so mitigated by having that knowledge. If she gets saved by Superman, she is chosen to trust him. Mm -hmm. to have her back exactly. and there's a world of distinction i think in that yeah i think there's value in the initial phase of her not knowing but like you know, like i said comics have been now around a really long time uh and yeah. so it it becomes awkward if she keeps having to sort of struggle to prove that he's clark and then he finds a way to foil it like those stories are valuable yeah. and, and one thing that might kind of be frustrating is that we don't have a good format for like a superman year two kind of book anywhere to do like those kind of stories like that early era but you know superman and lois as a, as a married couple who work as a team and have a kid feels very natural because of his sort of like parental kind of vibe anyway and i guess i should have been more clear like i i think that makes lois a better character now yes is, yeah is really yeah yeah 
As a contemporary character. Yes. Yes. And and the fact that she can support Superman in a way that she couldn't before having that knowledge. So anyway. Yeah. Like, are, are you uh, all watching Superman and Lois? I'm a little behind, but I am watching. Uh, like, there was a really good line, um, I think it was like episode four or five, where Clark misses a thing that was, you know, very important that Lois was setting up. And when he, like, comes mm-hmm. in, he starts to try to explain. And she's like, no, I don't need an explanation. I understand. You're Superman. Like, it's fine. <laughs> like, I am I am mad, but it's not like I don't understand. Yeah, that's that, that's part of the package when, when, this, when we go in this relationship, yeah. And those all felt very natural. Like, uh, and I, I like that kind of vibe for Lois here, where, like, yeah, we understand. Like, you're not going to get mad at a character for, like, saving so many lives what, instead of, like, showing up to, like, solve the situation right here in this moment for you. Um, and she's too capable to, like, sort of need to be that kind of, like, nagging housewife character. Like, yep. yeah, it, it's great. I, I, I love the modern era of Lois. Yeah. I need to... Did either of you read the Rucka Lois Lane book? I did, uh, but I didn't finish it. Is that the one where, with her and Renee? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I need to go back and read that. I got the first issue and think I said I was going to do it in trade. And in this moment, have realized I never picked up that trade. Yeah, it was, it was real good. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I it, it's the it ended around the the period where I got like derailed in my comic reading, and then everything backed up. And it yeah, you can s- sort of see I've got like a tower of books I'm trying to organize into any sort of way that I can actually read. <laughs> And catch up on. <laughs> Good yeah, luck with I, that, by the way, because I'm in the same boat. Oh yeah, <laughs> I continue to struggle under the weight of bagging and boarding. Almost a year of comics at this point. Uh, we also had the next part of our backup, The Passenger. Uh, this is written by Becky Clunan and Michael W. Conrad, with art by Michael Avon Oming, colors by Taki Soma, and letters by Dave Sharp. I'm enjoying this. I think more than I really expected to. Um, this is one of those weird stories that kind of continues a beat from future state so i wonder like i'll ask you this question case without having read the future state stuff jumping in at what comes after does this backup leave you with more questions than it answers or is it reading pretty clearly um all right so like i said i read the last couple issues so this if i just jumped into this issue i would have no idea what was going on Uh, fortunately i read enough that i'm like okay cool like different midnighter brain and also other intelligence i'm kind of following this this seems fine okay because there are like let's call it two chapters of this story that are before the chapter one that runs in action comics Mm -hmm. so that's that's why i ask but i'm glad that it it pretty well holds together um beyond that like it's it's more of the the trojan and uh midnighter kind of at each other i it's the dialogue between them that that really drives this one for me. I think we also had Superman number thirty two. Well, wait, week. we actually never actually talked about oh. the a plot of the issue. Oh, hey, you're right. We didn't. All right, that's funny. Which I only bring up because uh, so ironically, after this, I'm hopping on a call to talk about a different or about a kaiju movie for another pass. So the fact that I was like all of a sudden reading a kaiju story here, I was like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fair. Yeah, I. I think I forget that this happens because I have no clue where this is going. Like this is, this is not one of those mysteries where it's like, oh yeah, I read this mini series two years ago, so I know what they're leaning back to. It's like, no, I'm in the fucking dark, and I love being in the dark. Uh, 
but I could not tell you where this goes next. I have no idea what this piece of this story is building toward. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, larger story, the Atlantis stuff in general was not really... I wasn't really feeling it that much. And I was like, okay, we're getting some nods to the Aquaman movie because that was popular. Oh, all of a sudden there's a kaiju. Okay. And it's fun to see a kaiju fight. Like, that. <laughs> that's always good stuff. Always. Um, it, when Steve Trevor shows up at the end, it felt very 60s Marvel, where, like... <laughs> Everyone would just sort of pop in and like big, like, you know, like big exaggerated font saying their name. So you can remember like, oh, this is an important character from a different book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my response is the same basically as Arthur's. Whenever I see uh, Steve Trevor, it's Steve, get out. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious where they're going to go super... with it. Um, I'm more, I'm more yeah. interested in the, in the war world stuff uh, and look forward to eventually reading the stuff that is in the future that was written in the past <laughs> about it. <laughs> Incidentally, the war world stuff, uh, you're not going to get a whole lot in future state about. You get a very small piece. Most of that does live in action. Okay. Uh, Superman number 32. This is wrapping up Philip Kennedy Johnson's time on this book before Tom Taylor takes over and this book shifts its focus to being about John as Superman on Earth. Uh, the main feature here is The One Who Fell, uh, part three. Written again by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Scott Godleski, colors by Gabe Eltabe, and letters by Dave Sharp. I really like the the sort of epistolatory structure that this whole arc has taken. It's it's set you know on this planet where there's this monster, and it's almost a Venom style hive mind subsuming these creatures across, uh, these creatures across space. And Superman and this world's ruler had kind of, like, stopped it before, but he's back now. And, like, it's a very basic kind of Superman story. But I like having John there and having John have to be uh, the character who makes the difference, right? He has a version of a power that Superman doesn't, and that saves the day. But just seeing Superman talking to him about, like, watching him grow up and watching him be a hero and doing these things he can't or in these ways he might not think to like that says so much to me i think about where they're at in this relationship that's been in a way weird like i enjoyed the bendis stuff but bendis aged the kid like six seven years overnight and that's still something that like all these characters are coping with and i like see i like that that's sticking around and something they're having to cope with um but it also makes this i think solid passing the torch sort of story before the book becomes about John. Yeah. I mean, I think it's nice to do that kind of basic Superman story because it feels like a good father son kind of like, mm -hmm. like take your son to work, like be like, Oh yeah, we've dealt with these kind of things before. I literally fought this guy already. Uh, kind of yeah. stuff. Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> well, and we, the reader, we know the shape of the thing so we can focus on the differences. If it's a recognizable story. Yeah. Uh, those are all very nice beats. It's, I, I like the the vibe of John sort of ascending as as a Superman type character, even even if it feels a lot like Invincible. Like it feels like the mainstream books are sort of taking on what older comics that were like doing the analog stories are at, like you know already did, but now we're actually getting it in like the the official source material. Um, mm -hmm. But you know it's it's nice that it's also just nice that we have like a proper. You know, there's no twist. It's it is just Superman showing his son how to be Superman. Uh, the same as like Pa Kent was probably showing Clark how to farm and fix a car. Like now it's just yeah. like, oh, well, well, my job, my tasks are bigger. Like, come on, we're going to go fly to a different planet. <laughs> we're going to go fight like 
evil psychic shadow. Uh, it's great. Yeah. I, I will not- say, and I don't know if we talked about this uh, on the show already, Alex, but I, I'm very happy to see DC do things like this that seem to be permanently changing that status quo without feeling like something they're just going to roll back in a year. Yeah, and I think, and this is the kind of thing that maybe gets hard to talk about on the show because it's not something we have a direct view into. Like, we're getting filter after filter after filter, but there's a general consensus, it seems, that, like, a lot of these legacy characters, or, in general, the idea of a younger version of a character stepping up and taking the mantle in some capacity is something that had been frowned on editorially for some period of time by some group of editors, publishers, editors-in-chief, whatever. Like, whoever that subset is, um, I think Dan DiDio has gone, like, on record as saying, yeah, he's not a big fan of Nightwing operating at the same level as Batman, because who could ever catch up? I'm paraphrasing, but... Yeah, but that's how we got um, the Barry Allen rollback and the Hal Jordan rollbacks. Right. Right. And that's that's the point, right? Like, that, I think, sort of regressiveness was an editorial choice. And I think because we have a different group of editors and publisher and editor-in-chief, yes, the AT&T layoffs were terrible, and, like, no one who, a lot of the people who lost their jobs did not deserve to lose their jobs in the editorial staff. But in terms of picking up and moving forward, like, I think it's smart to say, okay, well, what can we gain from this change? And I think that idea that this is a living, breathing, changing organism again and not resetting to a status quo constantly is a really powerful win to take from that. And this is just my own. I I personally think there's probably a very big business decision behind this as far as you then have these new characters that are not... um, kind of locked into something that you can take into other media as well. Well, and I think broadly, and this is going to be true of Marvel too, not just DC. I think part of the reason why we see more and more and more focus on younger characters Mm -hmm. is because the actors playing recognizable established characters will age in real time in the real world. And you have to have more characters who can come in behind them. You can't reset to the same status quo and perpetually keep Batman at 32 when your actor playing Batman, that's a bad example because there are like three different Batman running around right now. <laughs> but when when your main continuity actor is going to be 32 for exactly one year of his life and it will take longer to film that movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a healthy change for comics. I I think so. Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, like I said, it sort of would be interesting if we had, like, books that could kind of be more of the earlier period stuff. And, like, I know, like, New 52, for example, like, the Morrison stuff was set five years before, like, the the Action Comics book was five years before the Superman book, which was a rotating Mm -hmm. roster. And, like, that created some issues there, but it, um, it allows you to sort of explore characters at phases of their lives that Western comics has sort of decided everything's going to be second act. Like, um, whereas like yeah. if, if we want to take the analogy of like these books as being like 
like mythology or like uh, legends, you know, like we can tell lots of stories about King Arthur in his younger days. And then also as, as monarch of England, mm-hmm. we can tell stories about Hercules during his trials versus before or after. Um, and that doesn't feel that weird. Cause we just say like, okay, this is taking place during this period of his life. And it's a big thing that we're all, we're all on board. Like we understand like, okay, he's a young hero at this point. Um, and, and we used to be able to do that kind of thing with like Superboy books, for example. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. But now, I don't know, it's it, now I think we do we do need to be able to move forward and show progressions for these characters, because otherwise it feels stale. Well, and well, you mentioned you mentioned Western comics. One of the most interesting things I think DC has been doing in the last few months is using storytelling and publishing structures that are not traditional to Western comics, or at least not traditionally successful in Western comics to tell stories at different points in time or different stories or to focus on characters who could not sustain their own book or even hold a mini series for five issues on their own. Um, I'm thinking about like Batman urban legends, which has four stories in every issue. And one is always a one shot and one is a chapter of a three part story and one's a five part and one's a six. So they all end up staggered and you get different slices of life. And sometimes that's a backup about, the first time Luke Fox worked with Batman and Alfred after finding out that Bruce was Batman. I could see, I could do with more of those and maybe even see some of those as standing things like the, the young wonder woman backup in wonder woman or the young Diana backup. (laughs) Like, I think that's a great example of what you're talking about. And I think there's room for more of that, especially in this kind of canny way where DC is being less precious about, well, characters X, Y, and Z need their ongoings at all time. And playing more with like let's do this in a backup let's do this in an anthology let's do this here or there or uh john ridley did a jace fox batman story in batman black and white that they then turned around and republished in the uh future state uh gotham miniseries as back matter just to make sure that people who read continuity but aren't reading the side stuff got that story because that story is going to be part of continuity. Yeah. And like that got reprinted two months after it was printed in the first case. One of the things that uh, it, DC did at one point is uh, you remember when they had their Elseworld stuff mm-hmm. and yeah. anytime there was a, 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 like a non-continuity story they wanted to tell, they just, they, they put Elseworlds like a little logo in the, in the top of the book. Right. I've never understood why, for the most part, all comic publishers didn't just come up with uh, essentially logos like that that said, "Oh, I want to tell a, I want to tell a Superboy story with the Legion of Superheroes that you know occurred during the time frame of when he was with the Legion of Superheroes in the 1960s." So you put like a 60s logo on there, and you like anybody picking up that book can just instantly know this is just a story that some writer had. That was that took place during this time, this setting, this time period, this whatever, and just let writers write the stories that they have. And whenever that is, they can use any setting, like put a 52 in there and it occurred during the 52 years and setting. I just and I never understood this idea that we have to be limited and beholden to what we're trying to do right now so much. I suspect that we will see more of that because one of the things that 
we've heard characters say after future or after yeah after future state in infinite i think it was in infinite frontier number zero we had someone say you know i'm remembering things that never happened to me because it turns out they have happened i'm getting back more of these other lives and i think that becomes a a, an in-universe reason and way to tell these stories right there's Uh, yeah dc have set themselves up perfectly to do that kind of thing yeah. And they've done it a few times because that's the same idea with like yeah. hyper time back in the 90s where yep. sometimes Wally West has green eyes, sometimes he has blue eyes, and there's a reason for it, but it also doesn't kind of matter. Yeah, I think Barbara <laughs> Gordon's the same way, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the rollback Check. of Elseworld was like a Dan Didio thing because that happened around the same time. It's the, the an approach to trying to streamline things, which has benefits. Like, that, that that's how we got Kara Zor-El back as Supergirl, which, as much as I was, like, frustrated at the time that we lost Linda mm-hmm. Danvers, like, it was the right choice. Like, it, it, it has done great things for that character. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I miss the ability to just have like a a random story where we're going to explore what the world looks like if Superman's parents never found him or we'll explore, you know, we'll, uh, we'll we'll say like, well, what if all the comics came out in, you know, Victorian England? Uh, right. (laughs) Well, and and that approach, like even they can even be with the way DC has it right now, they can even be in quote continuity. They were just in the continuity of that particular timeframe. Right. Um, so because now everything has happened, it just, you know, some characters have multiple lives that they have lived that had all of these different things now co- kind of combined into them. And so uh, there's very much a a value, and I'm not suggesting this at all, that your your modern character, what you're writing for today, that they need, you know, a, a that history and they need to carry on with a consistency within themselves. I'm just saying that... Y- you know, they've opened up this, uh, you know, um, multiverse of madness kind of, but like, (laughs) but like, that's okay. Just, uh, you keep saying you want everything to exist. So just allow everything to exist and don't feel frightened by having somebody go tell a story in something that, you know, yeah, that's not what you're quote promoting and trying to do right now, but if it's a good story, let them tell it. It'll sell books. Definitely. Checkmate number one. (laughs) <laughs> checkmate game over that's it written by brian michael bindis art by alex Malieve. yes please always thank you colors by dave stewart and letters by josh reed my favorite thing about this mini series is just the collection of characters involved in it i would 100 percent agree it is so eclectic and like nobody would ever put these characters together well and even the ones who like you who who have some common ground like Damien and Talia the idea of the two of them like working together as spies because they're both like on the same trail and like okay fine we can get in each other's way or we can just kind of do this like yeah we've never we we never really get to see Talia and Damien work together right well and the other thing is you know the the idea is that it's this kind of for lack of a better word council of detectives right right um but they all have, for the most part, a very, very different skill set, even amongst that kind of thing, right? Like, Lois as a detective, as an investigative reporter, is very different than, uh, you know, Manhunter as a detective. <laughs> right. Or investigating something. Green Arrow, who is a detective yeah. in as much as 
Batman's a detective, and Green Arrow's kind of templated on Batman historically, so maybe he he's he's got money. He's, he's funding say, he, it. He, he, he can buy information. That's that's yeah. that's his that's his detective ability. I mean, and then you get like Mister Bones, who is really, I would say, less of a detective and more of a administrator who's real good at putting things in the right places to see what how puzzle pieces fit. Right? Yeah. Which is a different skill set than like going and getting information from someone to track something down. So it, it, I think it's very interesting how all of these different people do or don't fit together. So I want to ask you a question, Brian. Mm -hmm. uh, I say this with no special knowledge, but a theory. Okay. Who do you think is the king? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. I've got a good answer, and it's a damn good answer to the point that I think it's right. Is it a, first of all, is it's a character we've seen before then? Yes. Okay. Is it a character we have seen not in a costume and mask before? Yes. Okay. Is it a someone who was like a child or... Yes. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. At least so you think. Maybe. Um, and I, I... You know what? Here's a, Maybe this is just like my, my subconscious working... Like when I read this, I was like, ah, this this is gonna turn out to be somebody's kid, isn't it? Like No. I, I mean no, not not in my theory. I mean technically okay. yes, in the everyone is someone's kid kind yeah. of way. But because uh, we do get the line like where Lois asks, How old are you? And uh where did you come from? Uh, oh, right? and there's somebody who says that you're not human. Well no, and then but then he's confirmed to be human. Correct, right. And that but my, my that questioning is um, hmm, I don't know. Commandy. Hmm. Here are my reasons. One, he looks like an adult commandy. He's got the long hair. Two. You're not wrong there. They're calling him the king, as in Jack Kirby. <laughs> Three, in, I believe, Infinite Crisis. It's either Infinite Crisis or 52. I don't think it was Final Crisis. It is established that the name Commandy is a reference to a checkmate division, Command D. You're not wrong. Additionally, the idea of like them thinking he's not human, right? Because very, he's from the future. Well, and like there he was pretty much the only human. Like it was all yep. non-human, right? Uh, That's... That's I, I like that a lot. I like to the point that I think you're right. I will be more surprised if it's not Commandy at this point, as yeah. well as it fits. Yeah. Um, other things in here I love, like I like I said, Alex Malieve always and forever. Sure. Um, I love uh, Mark Shaw greeting Talia and Damien. Yeah. And <laughs> Leviathan HQ in Markovia. And Damien just keep telling him he's under arrest. Yes. <laughs> Denying reality. I love it. Hanging upside down in this force field. Yes. Uh, Talia, I'm going to burn you to death. Uh, hey, did mommy tell you about me last time we were together? Just something about burning you alive. Uh, and then we get sort of the invitation to Lois to join Checkmate, which immediately makes me think she's going to try to go undercover in Checkmate. Oh, Leviathan, you mean. 
or sorry, Leviathan. Yeah, Leviathan. Leviathan. Yeah. yeah. I am I am so glad this book has made it back on the schedule. Me too. And yeah, yeah, because this this is one of the ones that got delayed for like a year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just um I imagine that like with so many shifts in terms of what stories were happening and death metal and continuity changing it. Sure. It made more sense just to l- delay it and let everything reestablish. Yep. Especially so. with Bindus writing Justice League now, like this can become another half of that. This team can do what the Justice League can't. You've got the Oliver Queen angle and both, and we get like that great bit in Justice League this week where yes. he says to Batman, like, no, you can you can check me. Yeah, like, uh, do what you I do. I see what do you, you did see Yeah, I love it. I love that. Good in stuff. case one event book from DC is not enough this week, <laughs> we have Infinite Frontier number one. Written by Joshua Williamson, with art by Hermonico, colors by Romulo Fayardo Jr., and letters by Tom Napolitano. Uh, we are finally picking up on some of the, the strings left behind by Infinite Frontier number zero, and all of the characters who we've seen in Secret Files figure in in some way, shape, or form here. Can I say I love the opening scene where somebody's just foisting off their Thomas Wayne Batman on this other Earth? <laughs> oh my god, the idea of... <laughs> Batman crashing in a spaceship into an alternate reality Smallville and being found by Superman's parents is one of the best, like, cold opens to an event book I have ever seen. <laughs> is that not great? Somebody sent us their Batman. <laughs> this is why we left the city. We were tired of this nonsense. Call Calvin. <laughs> He's busy. Call Calvin. Yeah. Oh, so good. So yeah. that that was I absolutely adored that part of this. I just opening to this this sort of first fight and seeing Alan Scott and Hot Girl and Mr. Terrific and mm-hmm. Vandal Savage all sort of on one side together was a really super a really cool moment. Um, I like the kind of cons- almost conspiracy theory vibe around people not believing that these these crises and all have happened and that yep. people have been rebooted. Like the denial of it, uh, which that's our that's our sort of intro to Roy Harper's plot here. Before that, we have Alan and Obsidian on their way to meet jade who disappears in an explosion uh yeah i'm a little worried about jade i gotta be honest with you yeah uh director bones recruits uh chase back to back to his newly reformed deo well and like the Uh, fight that they open with is with extant we should mention who is the main villain from oh yes (laughs) like yeah oh right sorry i forgot that you read this one too case shoot yeah uh yeah there's there's some there's and then we get i mean anytime captain carrot shows up you know i'm gonna be happy about that yes i mean captain carrot any any version of captain carrot that's all brian needs yeah and like when we uh, we were talking about um like the squad of supreme stuff with heroes reborn like machine heads part of this group of justice league incarnate which is their version of iron man uh from the very it's now like the retaliators or something like that but it's still also like rooted in that, (laughs) that original heroes of angor concept Yep. Yeah. Uh, Justice Incarnate is still one of my favorite concepts. Like, just a multiversal Justice League. Thank you, Grant Morrison, for this gift. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the big key points of this then are uh, Flash essentially finds the quintessence killed. 
Yes. Which which we have seen before, but they did not know about. Well, and we learned that that is on Earth Omega. Correct. Correct. And then we get the return of somebody I was not expecting to see, but I'm super happy. It's which is where I'll also mention that the last chapter of Secret Files, which comes out in print next week, dropped this morning digitally and is about this character. Oh, sweet. And it is incredible and has, like, there is a moment in it that I've always joked that if, like, Grant Morrison and Jonathan Hickman teamed up on a book, it's exactly how that book would end. Mm-hmm. And it happens in that issue, and it made me so happy. I'm not uh, that, Nick. But yeah, yeah, you, you, we get the the uh, psycho pirate issue of that yes, this week. Yes. I also like am here for this costume redesign for him. It is terrifying. Oh, it is, but especially when you realize why he's got that symbol on his chest. Yeah. Um, speaking of costume changes and new power sets and uh, sleek black and white costumes. Yeah, yeah. Roy Harper. <laughs> hmm. I uh. We'll be honest, I did not expect that for Roy, but I love it. I absolutely adore it. I'm Well, it makes complete sense. And it's, what's so funny is, remember in Dark Knight's Metal, Death Metal? I was about to say, especially in context of yeah. Batman reviving him. Yes, exactly. This is like, oh, right. Well, and just, just the, the reveal of it is all the different versions of roy in the background like this last page image is just such a cool moment with like he has basically saved himself by summoning these other versions of him Mm -hmm. like the arsenal and the speedy and the red arrow and yeah yeah i this was fun like this was this is not the big dumb fun of a death metal no, it's no, just, no. it's it's fun in a way that's like celebrating continuity and the idea of having just a big overarching mystery. I like that this issue didn't come out back in March when Infinite Frontier started. I like that we got sort of a zero and then some time to let it breathe. Almost the opposite of what I'm always saying about, like, release your events quickly. Like, build your mystery, have some fun, show some continuity, and then, like, check in on what's going on is, I think, another really smart way. Yeah, but the point is they didn't have 28 tie-ins between those two that you had that, to deal with. That's Exactly. Yeah. And, like, there are no tie-ins to this book. There is right. a one-shot that collects secret files. Right. Which are basically, like, here are some characters you might not know a lot about and how they get from where you last saw them, if you last saw them, to here. Mm-hmm. You know what I think? You know what I think you like about this so much, Alex? It reminds me of that, uh, that that short run of Exiles a year or so ago, where it's the idea of there's these multiple potential dimensions, there's the multiple hopping, there's the combination of characters from across these things that just, it's just a big fun playground kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair. Like, any, any story built along those lines that is yeah. well executed will be, like, straight up my alley. Yep, and this appears to be that. Yes. I feel like there was some other thing I was going to mention about it, and poof, it has vanished. But we will move on. Ruby Justice League number three. So I've talked about this a couple of times. This is the the third print issue. Um, uh, like I said, I've talked about it a couple of times. And again, this is just this is just a fun no consequence take on this combination of of characters um 
I think my favorite thing is seeing how they position the different Justice League members as part of the the Ruby world. Yeah, the world like of how Herman. they explain their power sets and stuff. What did you think, Chase? Um, honestly, this has been my least favorite issue so far of the series. I've, I've read the first two. Uh, I okay. I like Ruby a lot, although I think it is a series that benefits from its artistic style because it is um referential to a lot of material um mm. like i i think it's the the kind of thing you create when you're like i want to do something that's really fun and i i think there's some cool ideas that they're getting into but this is so like this is set very early in that series like ever, yes. like this yeah. is everyone's in their season 1 costumes and like there are characters who aren't around anymore that are around here uh and Correct. love yeah, to see true. them because miss them but like uh yeah it's 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 particular i i'm intrigued with like the how do you fit some of these characters in vibes that are, are going on for it um yeah but it i don't know the the art in this issue didn't sell me that much and i was kind of it, it kind of bugged me because the art artistic style is such a huge part of the file of the show yeah i would say that is not the strength of this the the strength of this is definitely just the uh again like the character and then the the interaction of, of how they treat each other is, is a little bit fun yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought the story was very true to like what you would see in the show. But like I said, yes. like the both the style of it and then the fact that the fight scenes are always so intricate and and interesting. Um, and you're just not getting that in this comic. Um, bugged me a little bit. Well, and to be fair, part of that is a medium choice. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fight scenes that are done in the show cannot be portrayed quite the same way in a, in a, in a print medium. Of any kind, a still picture medium, right? Right. Um, but that, but yeah, like the fact that you know, Wonder Woman is just an automaton, <laughs> right? Which is an established thing in this universe, right? Yeah, and that worked uh, for me. It is wonderful. Yeah. Um, to me, that's the most fun of this. And and again, I, I've said this. I think every time I talk about it, is that's what this is. This is just fun. Yeah, it's not. I would be intrigued if they could really explore Cyborg in the technology of the world of Ruby. Uh, and they talk a little bit about some of the things and how he's different than some of what they sort of established in the canon. Yeah. But because it's all like so built on this like MacGuffin of an impossible substance that allows them to do so many things, it would be really cool to sure. see him have more applications. The way that like Weiss's like uh, rapier has different... Um, like different types of dust that it can load as cartridges for different types of effects. Um, it would mm -hmm. be fun if like cyborg could really like implement that in a way to do like kind of like a green arrow trick arrows writ large kind of thing. Oh, um, that would be very cool. Like, yeah, he can essentially fire different effects, right? Yeah. Or incorporate different effects like that or incorporate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I say fire. I mean, whether that be, you know, as rockets from his boots or from a gun that he makes his hand or whatever that takes effect as. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because everything in Ruby is a gun, but it also it'd be fun to see someone like <laughs> like subvert it and have it not yes. be a gun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a very right manga thing that it's a or, or anime thing that everything is a gun in some way, but also not a gun. Listening to you talk, I wonder if this isn't a, a crossover that won't eventually get like an animated feature, we saw the Batman Ninja Turtles books get that. And it sounds like this would be a smart choice to, I would love it to make a movie out of. I, I would love to see that if they like the, the rooster teeth team does some really yeah. good stuff with their, with their animation. Now, like they've 
really stepped up their game from back in the day of just doing uh footage taken from Halo and it's <laughs> uh yeah, I like I love the Ruby yeah, series, so I would definitely uh love to see this like actually visualized. Yeah, Ruby Rooster Teeth has very much grown from a uh a uh, a fan-made <laughs> service of just create what you can to a actual professional. Yeah, they're they're pretty amazing these days. Cool. Let's talk about Wonder Woman Black and Gold number one. Uh, Case, I think you started to allude to this this book's color palette earlier. I am shocked by how well it works. Yeah, like back back when I was a, a college student writing Wonder Woman fanfics, um, I I had like really wanted to like have the character have like silver be a defining color for her because I wanted to like incorporate um, the sort of the star aesthetic and have it have like actual logic beyond just like American patriotism. Um, And then, then new 52 did that and I saw it and I was like, Oh, that doesn't look right. I'm, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And now seeing it here where like her costume can honestly be like a black, like, like one piece bathing suit with like gold trim and she would still feel like wonder woman. Like apparently gold was just that secret sauce that like we, I had totally missed in her design because <laughs> power princess, you know, like she's got like just basic, basic superhero woman outfit, maybe basic 90 superhero woman outfit. Uh, but the gold trim just like really sells it as being like, Oh yeah, this is wonder woman. Like here it's, it's shocking that we can have so many frames of a character in like all black, with like, yeah, sure. There's like some detail work, but like the gold trim. All of a sudden, you're like, nope, that brings it all together. Like, <laughs> I think we have just seen her golden tiara and lariat for so long now that there's there's like a subconscious association there, maybe in some way. I think that makes sense. Because um, even in even in the the middle story here, uh, I'm Ageless, which is written by John Arcudi with art by Ryan Sook and letters by Michael Heisler. Uh, this is probably the story that uses the least gold and it's still like it's on the tiara and it's on the sort of emblem at the top of her costume and it's on her lasso and that's it there's nothing else other than some like rays of light and i think there's one panel here where you see like light reflecting off of her her leg bracers there's almost nothing else in this book that is colored uh and it still reads immediately did you have any favorites in here case um the the first story with uh hippolyta being sick actually like just immediately jumped out at me as being one like i really like this like the like, like the call your mother more often kind of story <laughs> was a lot of fun because it's it she is such a weird uh backstory in terms of like just the it's just like one of those like things about comics that it was like nice to sort of like humanize and update the amazons um yeah so that one stood out the etta candy story i really enjoyed that one was great i love i love amy reader's art in that story that there are a couple of pages there's i think the very last page that is etta and diana and just the pile of candy but also that page where diana's waiting in the vault is i would take a print of just that page yeah and then lastly like you already mentioned that the i'm ageless story like i really you know, like when when we talk about like what kind of stories we tell in comic books, oftentimes it's a, a metaphor for experiences that we kind of go through in our real world um, that are impossible to sort of make heroic or dynamic because they seem kind of mundane. And like there's an element of that that feels like um, 
have you guys ever seen the meme that goes around about like the ancient elves approach to dogs where it's like dogs see us as like like these ageless elves that like steward them and shepherd them on um and it's like <laughs> no super sweet to like kind of visualize that because like you know the um like like my dog died last year and it was like a big thing for me and like feeling those kind of connections where it's like yeah it's a fleeting experience like you only have like a few years with these this thing but it still means so much to you like you shouldn't like like why wouldn't other like immortals to our perspective have that same kind of vibe like a character that can exist for like so long will still have like really important like additions to their life that like only last for a small portion for them but that doesn't mean that they don't mourn it and that doesn't mean that they don't uh have an impact absolutely like contextual and i love that it's batman challenging her right like batman with the cynical how can you possibly get attached when these are just when, when people are a blip in your lifetime it's like diana even says okay now now i can kind of tell you who who thinks people are just a blip um but I love I love that sort of turning around the question that gets asked of villains, right? They're like, well, okay, of course they're an immortal evil. People are like gnats to them, you know. It's the apocalypse. I am as far removed from you as you are from humans idea. But showing the other side of that for Diana feels very true to that character. I I value people because they are fleeting. Um I also just, whenever John Arcudi pops up, I always forget how much I like John Arcudi as a writer. Yeah, so those were the three big ones. The uh, the What Doesn't Kill You, uh, it might it might have been the art, but, like, didn't really, like, hook me. And um... I, I think it's a very, I, I thought it was fun. I don't think it's the most standout in this. I liked, I liked the story, maybe, a little more than the, the writing, but I think, or than the art, but I do think it's a very... Like, sort of recognizable kind of story, right? Um, I'm also always a sucker, just since we haven't acknowledged the last one, I'm always a sucker for Becky Cloonan as an artist. I love seeing her draw a book. And, like, she's writing, co-writing Wonder Woman right now, but, like, getting to see her draw Wonder Woman is, was nice. Yeah, there were some frames in that story that were, I, I thought, great. Uh, like, her confronting yeah. the bull. Um her carrying the golden fleece on her shoulder. There there are moments where you make Wonder Woman more mythical than she necessarily has to be that I oftentimes really enjoy. Yeah. Well, and it's it's the difference between like Wonder Woman is doing the thing and the thing has sort of semiotically a mythological quality, right? Like she's carrying the golden fleece. We associate the golden fleece with Jason and the Argonauts fighting, dealing with, you know, Dealing with the bull is a very mythological story in a lot of ways, right? Those moments, I think, feel cool because they have that weight and that context absent Wonder Woman. So they just add it and they add it very easily and very naturally. As opposed to saying, maybe she can swing from lightning bolts with her lasso. That just feels like trying to, to say, okay, the character's cool for the sake of saying the character's cool. Like, you don't have to work so hard to prove it. And I think that's why moments like this work really well for me. Yeah. Uh, overall, fun fun book. I really liked Superman Red and Blue and uh, am happy to sort of see this approach being taken here as well. Yeah. And I will probably have to go back and read Batman Black and White. There were some really good stories in this last volume of Batman Black and White. Uh, there was also a Harley Quinn Red, White, and Black that was really good. And there are some stories in the hardcover for that that are new that weren't in the single issues. So... I'd almost say, like, maybe just grab the trade or the hardcover if you haven't already picked up whatever uh, when it comes out. Homesick Pilots number six. They're back, Brian. 
Oh my god! Sort of. <laughs> Some of them are back. One of them. One. One of the homesick pilots is back. One of the homesick pilots is back, but another character that we knew from before is also back. Um, yes. Neither of them are having a good time, however. <laughs> no. Uh, we 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 when last when last we saw our our uh, well protagonists maybe for this arc. Um, our characters that we're now following. How's that? Yeah. Meg had escaped the house, mm-hmm. and uh, both of her friends were killed by it. Rip basically pieced out. The The house was destroyed, but now mm-hmm. we are with this group of scientists on a government contract trying to rebuild it. And because Meg is sort of permanently cloaked in and haunted by the blood of her dead friends... Oh, that's so cool. Uh, she can connect to these sort of, like... Haunted House Golem Power Rangers Zords. Uh, she can, granted, yeah, she, they're still having trouble getting them to work, but she can connect. Well, she can she can speak to and talk to the ghosts and convince them to power these things. Right, is the way yeah. that I read it. Yeah, which makes sense because that's really what we saw happen in the first arc. Right, right, and you know the. We basically get in this issue the the all the details on how this I'm going to call it a government installation, even though they're not they don't they're they're not government they're government contractors. They're they're a bunch of sellouts, is they're, what they right, are exactly. Um, but yeah, they use military money to try to understand and find ways to harness this supernatural whatever is going on be it ghosts or entities or abilities or hauntings or i don't know whatever it is and what i really like about this first issue back for the second arc is i think we already had a sense that like meg was going to be more complex than the rest of the nuclear bastards oh sure 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 i don't think that was ever in question I do think we were kind of at a point with Rip where it's like, okay, Rip's kind of the worst. Oh, we were definitely led down that path, yes. And now with like a few months having passed and Rip and Meg are both sort of in this together, but Rip is keeping his distance. We see him like realize, one, as as these scientists are trying to kind of play him and use him to manip- manipulate her. One, he realizes, okay, they are absolutely just manipulating her. And two, like, he immediately goes to her and tries to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Like, he's... We saw him in grief in the first arc, and, like, here he is kind of digging his way out of it and trying to help her do the same. And it's a very different context, and I think a really smart one to come back in for this new arc. It keeps it... In the same way that kind of every issue of the first arc felt like it was not changing what the book was or changing context, but, like, stripping away and showing a new layer. Mm-hmm. This is another layer that's, I think, even more foundational, ultimately, to what this book is going to be. Yeah. And doing that in a second arc is impressive. I, I would agree with that. And I think part of it is the shift in in characters that we're following, right? And that's mm-hmm. one of the things, Rip in particular, is I think we were given really just one aspect, which is his clearly what is his character flaw, and that is that when he feels overwhelmed, he you know, turns to drugs and kind of gives up. Right. Mm -hmm. But you see in this, 
why he had friends like he did before. Yeah. You, you you see what the other aspects, like what the good parts of him are. Uh, and that's, I think that's very cool. Um, I, I am very, every, every time I, every time I read a new issue of this book, I'm like, I'm very worried about what they're going to do with these characters. <laughs> I don't think anybody's safe. I don't think any, any, anything that they, even that they establish themselves necessarily has to stay that way. So, but not in a way that feels arbitrary either. No, right. No, no, like no, right. it's very much a, what are you doing? It's, what are you doing? Yeah. What do you have up your sleeve that we can't see the shape of yet? Yeah, it's not a gimmick where they're just doing something just so they can pull the rug out from under you. It's all very constructed and justified, and but it is what it is. And it's also, good. like, I mean, we always we always say how great Casper Wingard is, but that that sort of broad panel of walking into the warehouse where all the spooky stuff is. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuck in my brain. I love it. And and like, there's a point where like she's in the shower, and apparently she does this regularly, trying to wash off all the blood, and it never stays. Um, but like it just shows like the bottom half of her calves, and just the way that's drawn, where like the blood is kind of coming off, but not really. Yeah. Like it's just oh, that's mm. no matter how much comes off, it's always still there. Yeah. She is haunted and good. Yeah, and here's the thing is all some of the characters like you said that you think you're not going to like you're now like no these are the I do like these characters. Yeah. yeah. I would say what? some of these characters are a little more gray than you thought but maybe they're a little more red than you thought. <laughs> Let's talk about Gamma Flight number 1 written by Al Ewing and Crystal Fraser, art by Lan Medina, colors by Antonio Fabella and letters by Joe Sabino. Uh this is the first part of our five issue spin-off following the team that had been hunting the Hulk and then basically said, Henry Peter Gyrick, no, he's a villain. We're done. <laughs> so I have not been reading the Hulk, but I picked up this issue because, you mm-hmm. know, I figured issue one would be a jumping on point. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tell me about that experience. That That is an experience. I mean, fortunately, I was pretty familiar with all these characters already. Like, oh, Doc Sampson is now Sasquatch. Took a second, but, you know, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm always I'm always here for Titania and Crusher Creel. Like, I, yes. I, I love them so. Uh, Crusher Creel being given an adamantium ring uh, in this issue was like, yeah, finally. Why didn't you just, like, I think that, um, there's a character in Young Avengers. How never just went to a store and got one of those, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but there's, like, a character in Young, Young Avengers who has, like, the same basic deal with vibranium. And it's like, yeah, that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. If you have the ability to absorb the property of something you touch, like, carry something good. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe one ring of each would be, uh, you know, you can choose. How about that? Vibranium earrings, I think, is what, uh, if, if Case and I are thinking of the same character, there was a character in, yeah, it's, uh, Kate, West Coast, Kate, West Coast, Kate, Coast sorry, not Young Kate Bishop's yeah. boyfriend, right? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, earrings or adamantium nose earrings, wish, but... maybe it was a nose yeah. ring, some kind of piercing of adamantium. Yes. Yeah. He's from Wakanda, so it makes uh, sense that he has it, but like, yeah. 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 Or sorry, vibranium. Vibranium. Yeah. Uh, this is also one of two issues this week in which Al Ewing mentions secondary adamantium specifically. I noticed that, yeah. I did too. Which is uh, fine. I mean, like, secondary adamantium has been established in Marvel. but it's, There were a lot of spots in this book which were, like, primers for, like, oh, remember these things that are out there. Like, they they set up... They set up the end reveal in this much earlier in the issue, which was like kind of nice, not in a direct way, but like, oh, they, they 
prime your brain to be aware of who the characters are. Yeah. And I'm sure that I'm sure the secondary adamantium being something that Thor could break will pop up at some point uh, in this. Very likely, if not in this explicitly, which is certainly possible, then in sword or in right. last annihilation or because we will we will talk more about this when we get into mutant time but al ewing basically just has uh, uh custody of space at this point as a writer and is building some really like cool exciting different things but at the same time like because he is so planned and because he does like work in advance and build on top of the things he's done in other books you do get a lot of like i'm gonna reference this in both of these books just in case someone's only reading one of them and if you're reading at all, you can start to see maybe the shape of things, but at the same time, like, who knows? Like, there will be some left-field twist that will also recontextualize it. I gotta say, I, I also love the the plot point that, um, you know, you have this team of characters, and the two that are not getting along and are kind of uh, causing each other friction, um, when they try to teleport the team back, of course, those are the two that get left behind <laughs> together. Yeah, It's like, hmm... Oops. I love, uh, it. I love it. So I read this right after this I read is... Marvel Pride. Um and there's mm-hmm. a panel in here with the with Charlene that was like felt a little heavy handed in the way it was written. Um but it also I don't know. A little bit. I, I not even the moment, I think just the wording. The wording is I think maybe where it did to me. Yeah. I will say that, and I was about to mention, I believe I believe that this is the first the first mini series at Marvel written by a trans writer. Uh the co-writer Crystal Fraser is a trans woman. Okay. And which I bring up in part because one like let's get more representation out there. Absolutely. Um that this is the first is frankly kind of shocking to me and I hope when I saw that statistic thrown out that someone else had missed a book that I'm also missing. Uh, but two, like, even then, like, what are we going to be at? Two, three, let's, let's do more. Uh, but two, like, I can kind of forgive maybe a, a moment that felt a little clumsy as like, let's get the moment in here and find a way to make sure readers understand. Um, uh, yeah. Like, if it's something we went to establish quickly and move on, like, it's not, it's not the worst way to do it. Yeah. And it's an issue one where like, you might not be familiar with the character. Like, I didn't know that she was supposed to be a trans character until that, that panel. I so. Mean, I'll be honest, I've read all of Immortal Hulk, and I did not realize she was trans. Yeah. So that's all fine. Like, I I do think it's important in comics to address those issues and to sort of, like, give a framework for young people to sort of to think about it in a way that makes it part of their their experience. Like, even if you're not directly connected to someone who's going through those issues, like, um, like, I think it's good. I think all of it's good. It was just like a very, like, it was very uh, like it was a very Stan Lee kind of like big gesture kind of like the word like trans is like almost in bold kind of thing like yeah I I definitely bumped into just Mm -hmm. the execution of it in the same way that you did but I do think it's an important moment because there's a habit in comics I think among readers among writers just in general because Again, we've only had this language and the ability to discuss as part of broad cultural context for a short period of time. 
relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. There's this habit of taking characters as metaphor. I mean, the X-Men are your prime example. The metaphor are the X-Men are metaphor for minority. Any marginalized group that a writer wants to use, use them for. Um but there's also the 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 opposite impulse as a how do I want to phrase this? There's value in having in in especially in times when being closeted was the norm and certainly there are still places in the world and in the US where it's not safe to be out or situations where people aren't safe being out. I think there's value in having characters that someone can look at and say I recognize this in myself in Animorphs there are a lot of people who look at Tobias and see some similar form of self-acceptance in, in his story versus coming out as trans. I, as a cishet white dude, like, try not to do that because I, I don't want to assign context where it's not there and would rather see more trans stories out there. And there's something about this moment that gets to that kind of impulse in me of the don't let Doc Sasquatch treat himself as a metaphor for this other experience that's not his. Like, don't actively do that now. We don't have to do that now in storytelling. Yeah, I, I so, like, I, I think to your point about, like, do we always need it to be a metaphor or can we actually talk about the real thing? That's very valid. Like, I was, I was listening to uh, Fabian Niciesa talk about... Um, working on both the legacy virus, but at the same time, Marvel wouldn't let him deal with AIDS stories and new warriors. Um, and like, I think both are like, you, it kind of benefits to do both. And especially if, as you want to mm-hmm. like really sort of um, push it forward and it becomes more of a mainstream conversation, you need less and less of that obfuscation to have that kind of discussion. Um, like I know that the Hulk has oftentimes been part of a discussion for, for trans um, fans, at least um, I've, uh, like the the podcast AP Marvel has had tons of conversations about how like part of that is that you have a, a, a person like like different identities built into the character um, that are no less valid and like how to how I don't know if I can properly explain it because I again also not in that scenario like but but have like the fact that people have related to the characters is important yes but also not yes. having to re- force them to relate to the metaphor sometimes, but to relate to things that are more like overt uh, is also important. And yeah, like all of that's good. Metaphor it was entirely not... just the delivery of the line. That was like, this is awkward. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm there with you. I just, mm-hmm. I feel like there's something more important there than just the delivery. And I wanted to, wanted to point to that and not, not dismiss the moment as a whole. I, I, I did. I, I had the same kind of, pause i guess when i read that and then i i wondered if it was it almost makes me wonder if it was done intentionally as maybe this is how somebody maybe this is how they actually hear people talk and like realize that's not how you have that conversation you know what i mean yeah 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 i think i think the moment is is where the value is right yeah the exact wording like like you said, maybe maybe it's worded that way just to get us to stop and talk about it. Maybe, maybe, maybe I don't know. We just read it a certain way. Um, I mean, it again, it's fine. The, the like again, first issue for me. Uh, so I had no idea with the character. So mm-hmm. it, it just struck me because it was like a strange delivery. But also, Doc Sampson talks out of his ass all the time. So Ex- someone yeah. telling him, "Hey, you're talking <laughs> yeah. out of your ass," is a good thing to do. So 
<laughs> yeah, that's not good. Uh, I, I mean, like I said, I love I love the introductions of the character. Uh, Rick Jones, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, Rick's in a. I guess saying he's in an odd place is a little a bit of an understatement right now. Yeah, I. I don't know that I can adequately explain explain the current status quo for Rick Jones, but basically, uh, death is a temporary thing for Hulks, and there was some scientific experimentation going on. And now he and someone else who is gamma irradiated kind of stuck in one body, but also there's some uh, other shit going on that has them just like as a monstrous blob. Yeah. Can, can I say I, I love uh, mutants and uh, gamma radiation folks, uh, you know, all, all of that side of Marvel now have canonical reasons for why they don't die. Stay dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved there was a, a line in there where um, they say we've never successfully treated someone who is uh, or permanently treated someone who's been uh, mutated by gamma radiation. And I thought like, oh, that's a great line in there because it creates this sort of um, this gloomy shadow over what is just sort of a comic trope of if you get powers and you lose them eventually you'll probably have them pop up again kind of thing like rick jones has had gamma powers a bunch of times uh and it's just mm -hmm. like yep he's like never going to be cured because he's a comic book character like that that's yeah. the real reason but it's like nice that they've sort of just like now it now it feels like it like look you might it, we might be able to get it in remission but it's going to come back yeah <laughs> which is also how they set up scar which is a I was gonna say, which is uh, pertinent to the last page reveal here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't like the weird finger things that they're doing with the Hulk art these days, like the weird fingers out of your face uh, stuff. Like, <laughs> uh, that might be why I haven't uh, really like checked out the Hulk recently, but it's just like that's that's some weird. There was a relatively recent issue, the cover of which was straight up a uh, an homage to oh, who's the painter who does. H.R. Geiger? No, the, like, sort of classic painter who does, uh... Boris Vallejo? Like, Nightmare Escapes? No, sorry. Well, I'm blanking on the name, but this is... It's very much, like, an aesthetic choice that is just, let's make... There's a lot of Geiger in, in, in the imagery in the books, too, but, uh... Like, there's definitely a, a desire to make this as creepy and horrifying and just stomach-churning yeah. as possible. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that in Immortal Hulk. I mean, Immortal Hulk is a body horror. But... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up. Let's talk about Marvel's Voices Pride number one. Uh, same question as Wonder Woman. Any any sort of favorite standout stories here? Well, first up, I just really appreciated them kind of doing a timeline of gay characters in Marvel comics uh, with Prodigy. Yeah. Like that was a very nice uh, primer for the conversation and a, like a reminder that it is just a, a, a thing in Marvel that just as much as, as it's a thing in the real world. Doug that uh, I read this before I read Gamma flight. So seeing Titania show up, I was like really excited and I didn't realize that she was in Gamma flight. So I was like, yeah, we got like, <laughs> like happy to see her. And then, uh, and then she was like a main character in a, another book. So, <laughs> So maybe if the if I'd been reverse order, it would have been different vibes. Um, I like the runaway story with uh, Carolina and, and Nico. Um, I thought that was a cute date. I always enjoy them. Uh, like I, I enjoy that franchise in general. Yeah, the the more of the two of them, and yeah, runaways in general, we get the happier I always am. Uh, I enjoyed seeing Electra show up as Daredevil in here. I love this costume design. So anytime someone gets to use it. 
it, it kind of delights me. Um, the story Colossus I really like because it's it is a complicated thing to talk about when you don't have as rigid a category as just like oh I'm totally gay I'm totally straight kind of thing. Um, and that I thought was like a good explanation. I think uh for everything. Yeah, I thought the I thought in general the the mutant books, the mutant stories in this book were some of the strongest. Um the one that stood out the most to me was the one with Iceman and Magneto. I wanted to talk about that one. Uh, that feels like this feels really Ian McKellen Magneto. It does. I had that same vibe from it. I mean, he seems particularly old and, like, a little bit uh, thinner than we normally see, even in, like, the 60s kind of incarnation. And I felt like that mm-hmm. was kind of a tribute to the fact that, like, Ian McKellen coming out was, like, really impactful on nerd communities because he had become so ingrained as both Gandalf and Magneto. Um, yeah. And, and I th- felt like that was a tribute to him where, you know, it's, like, life imitating art, imitating life, like, how how it all kind of, like, plays with each other. Um, and... Yeah, I, I thought that was uh, a really nice touch there. Yeah, I, I I think that is probably my favorite story in this issue. Uh, I always forget that in in the world of of X Men lore that Irene Adler is that Irene Adler, right? <laughs> so I was like, what? What are we doing? What? Sherlock Holmes isn't a Marvel character. What is James Moriarty doing here? Then I'm like, oh yeah, Irene Adler. Uh, uh, that that one was also fun though. Um, you kind of expect maybe the faint that happens, but at the same time, it's like, oh yeah, that's why she's so bad at chess today. Yeah, the, uh, the X Men stuff. Um, this the new character they introduced, Somnus. I was like, oh, is he a night mask? Is that his deal? But I think he just looks like a night mask. Hmm. Unless he is, and they just I like, liked that story. Yeah, I I think it's a cool power. Like, yeah, <laughs> basically do the inner light episodes of Star Trek as a superpower. <laughs> Your superpower is for the man who has everything. <laughs> and I like that they uh, reprinted and then we get the Alpha a reprint issue. of. Yeah, that was that was a nice touch. Yeah. yeah, I I say it every time we talk about them, but I love these anthology books. I think they're a great way to like really spotlight characters who don't get as much spotlight. And I like that Marvel is using them specifically for characters who have been, or who, who, who are from marginalized identities. Right. Yeah. Uh, Reptile number two written by Terry Blas pencils by Enid Balam inks by Victor Olasaba colors by Carlos Lopez, and letters by Joe Sabino. I like this book in ways that I can't entirely explain that boil down to, well, yeah, he is the best superhero because dinosaurs are awesome. Basically, like, <laughs> if if Heroes Reborn is, like, all of my, like, teenage nerd thoughts about Marvel Comics and DC Comics, like, somehow becoming someone else's book, like, Reptile is all of my ideas as a five-year-old about, like, what I wanted in the superhero. Right. It's like, forget adolescent power fantasy. Give me child power fantasy. Yeah. Like, I Give know me that, joke. like, imaginative fun. Like, I, and I'm sure everyone had this idea at some point in their life. Like, how cool would it be if you could turn into any dinosaur? Like, I think every single person thinks that at yeah. some point. Because like, dinosaurs are the best. Wait, wait, wait. Are you guys telling me I can't turn into a dinosaur? <laughs> well, Brian, you are in I, your you could, 50s, but you forgot how. So I'm going to tread, I'm going to tread gingerly on my reply. <laughs> Uh, it's great. I, uh, it is interesting at one point, 
they they early on address the uh, pterosaur versus dinosaur situation. Uh, <laughs> and I appreciate it because my screen name on on uh, on Instagram is Quetzalcoatl five, so I'm always uh, down for yeah. any conversation about the Quetzalcoatlus, the giraffe sized flying creature that used to exist. <laughs> uh, so good. I love. That's the other thing. Dinosaurs are weird. They're like aliens that were actually on Earth. Yeah, as someone who uh, just like binges PBS Eons videos all the time as an adult, where I'm just like, oh, I just want to, I just want to watch this thing about a dinosaur. Um, the this is all the fun that you could possibly want. Um, I'm waiting to see more of a story. I love his cousin. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. That's fair, but, like, I love his cousins as characters and, like, giving them room to sort of show off who they are. Like, I'm okay with a little slower pace to build this world. Like, if this is only four issues and we don't get any more, then, yeah, I'll be with you and, like, some more story would be nice. But this feels to me... Especially with the way Marvel's tried to market it, saying this character is going to be like the next big teen character. This almost feels to me more like this is the thing you read now to catch up, and then there's going to be an ongoing, or he's going to join the champions, or something like that. In that same way that the Shang-Chi miniseries that Jean Lun Yang and DK Ruan did last year, earlier this year, like was a reintroduction ahead of a new ongoing. Now there's not a reptile movie in the works to my knowledge or a reptile, anything <laughs> in the works to my knowledge. So like that also probably had something to do with the Shang-Chi ongoing, but I, I do need this character to have a life past this book, especially as much work as it's doing to like build out a cast and other characters and priorities and lore. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that Marvel finally has a Beast Boy. Yeah. Well, and this is a character who's been around a little while. Like, I know he was an Avengers Academy character, and I think he might have been in the... What was the book that was uh, Hunger Games, but Young Avengers? Oh, right. Uh, we we know the book I'm talking yeah, about. I, yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, he hasn't been around a whole lot outside of if you're specifically following... Young Avengers, like, or Avengers Academy style books. Are we ready to talk Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah. We are written by Al Ewing, art by Juan Frigeri, colors by Federico Blay, and letters by Corey Pettit. Did you read this before or after Sword? I read this before. Okay, I also read this before. I think it wants you to read it after. You'll have a little more context for one moment. Um, but I don't think it makes a huge difference at the end of the day. I love Dr. Doom out here with, uh, with the Guardians. I like this kind of, this kind of balance between political upheaval in the galaxy. That's been an ongoing thing in Ewing's run so far. But with this idea that now the Guardians actually are basically a legit team that have to be proactive in space because i feel like they're always they're always the fuck-ups who deal with the problems after they arise right no one takes them seriously enough to actually see them as a threat and now they are the avengers but in space right that's literally how they're described i forget if it's here or sword but they are working as the avengers and they're running multiple teams and dealing with ops and one of those ops is the giant space egg that used to be Ego. Yep. It's like the uh, change one letter on this D&D &D spell. <laughs> Go from Ego to Egg. 
Um, I liked everything that was Guardians of the Galaxy in this issue. In this issue, when Nova gets into a fight with Magneto, while the idea of that fight is great, uh, two bucket heads with like vast energy powers going at it, the fact that they got into yeah. a fight felt so ham fisted. And I get it that there's drama and there's like he's just fed up and all that stuff. And like he even admits it afterwards. But it was just like it's just like no, I fuck this guy. <laughs> the I don't disagree with you. I do look forward to the inevitable issue where we see him working on this with his therapist because one of the things that this run has done is like occasionally shown us Sam in therapy working on some of this stuff. So like I think there's something interesting in letting him explore the fallout of that and dealing with that and dealing with that anger. I agree that that moment, like, especially to be so much about sword and about hellfire gala, like kind of felt like it took up a little more oxygen that could have gone to some other things in this issue. Uh, but there's a reason we're butting this up right against hellfire gala. And it's because it very much connects to that. Yeah. I mean, it, it almost is a hellfire gala tie in. Like again, all the stuff that was guardians of the galaxy. I really enjoyed. I really loved Hercules saying like, Oh, it's like the European union and rocket being like, no, it's not <laughs> like the European union. It doesn't always have to be earth stuff. <laughs> <laughs> us and our metaphors huh yeah i i, I mean um, i'm a huge like i loved annihilation i loved all of those books in the early 2000s or, or mid 2000s um all the space stuff i loved richard Ryder. like the nova run by dna was uh, amazing um so i'm i'm super here for more of that and for them to sort of like work in that space like i i feel like this is way more respectful than when i was like checking in on bendis's run on guardians of the galaxy respectful is probably the wrong word but like bendis was doing bendis uh yeah and this feels like oh we're building on everything before and like doing something cool with it yeah that that bendis run like especially looking at it in hindsight that just kind of moment for him at marvel i think you can see some burnout there like his stuff he's done at dc since the switch has felt Still like Bendis, but very, very much fresh. Very, very much like he's re-energized. Energized, that's what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah. Um, I will say that Nova punches Magneto, and um, that should have taken his head off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, Nova has beaten Stronian, Guardian's cousin, like the super cool <laughs> in a fight. Um, it wasn't an easy fight, <laughs> but he did it. <laughs> yeah. I... I, I love this weird, like, I've lived a couple of lifetimes and forgotten another reality worth of living, but I also have, like, weird space sun god powers and am enlightened Star-Lord. Like, as a break from... Chris Pratt. Kind of dumb fuck-up Star-Lord. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, look, I am I am in camp. Well, maybe the movies will make him canon by or pan too, and Chris Pratt will leave. Uh, but that's neither here nor there like I love his whole I could get involved but that would just make it worse and stand back and like let it play out thing that's so not Star-Lord but so perfect for where he's at right now mm -hmm. Um, let's talk about Ego the Egg Um, specifically what Ego the Egg hatches because this is not something I expected and I love it yeah, when they said it started was starting to hatch, I'm like, okay, so what celestial thing is about to happen right now to tie this into Eternals? Nope. <laughs> uh, nope, it's a Dormammu. <laughs> Ego's, Ego's gone and gotten himself possessed. 
That sounds bad in every way I can conceive of. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, here's your context for that moment in Sword when Doom's like, yeah, Cap, you're probably going to need my help at some point, and just now I'll answer the phone. Because presumably, I don't know, I guess he's back from space to visit for that, because this is happening concurrently uh, with Sword, more or less. But, okay, yeah, Steve's probably going to need some help dealing with Dormammu if Dormammu, the planet, gets to Earth. Yeah, which is always the, the issue in Marvel books, where the big space stuff is so big and crazy. Um, yeah. And then, like, sim- like Annihilation happened at the same time as the original Civil War. And it's always like, wait, what the fuck were you guys doing? Like, literally the entire universe almost ended. And you guys were just, like, pissed <laughs> at each other because, like, they wanted to have an ID card for you? I'm going to be honest. Uh, having lived through 2020 and 2021 so far, actually, that feels very on brand for at least America. Yeah. <laughs> Fair mean, for yeah, America, yes. while the word world, world burns. That makes perfect yeah. sense. Um, this is where I will also mention Al Ewing is taking another book on starting in September or October. Uh, Al Ewing and Ram V will be co-writing Venom. So take Sword and Guardians and Last Annihilation and add Venom to the mix now. Because as, as I, as far as I can tell, it's Venom back in space. And given how, uh, Kate's left his run, like, there's a lot of potential in Venom, like, really causing, really becoming a, a force for, I don't know, chaos or change or just, like, big set-piece moments in, in the space storytelling. Hellfire Gala. Let's do it. Okay. Wolverine, number 13, picks up from X-Force, number whatever the last issue of X-Force was. Written by Benjamin Percy, pencils by Scott Eaton, inks by Oren Hunior, colors by Matthew Wilson, letters by Corey Pettit, and design by Tom Muller. It's not easy being green. It's not easy being blue either, and everybody uh, telling you how wrong you are. (laughs) But he needs to hear that. He won't listen, but he needs to hear it. Oh, he absolutely does, yes. Uh, it's so yeah, hard for I me to see how that... far Beast has fallen. Like I cosplay Beast, I really, lo- I really relate to Beast as he was in like Avengers and like '90s X Men days. Uh, yeah, the, the modern Beast. I'm like, I oh man, <laughs> I, I I get that. But Alex and I have talked. But like, he's a very real character. Like there are people that are absolutely just that way. That the ends justify the means and you can logically I like I think it was Sage who made the comment, you could justify any action. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the answer is yes, you can. You just have to place it in the right context and you can justify anything you want. But uh I'm a I'm a little surprised honestly at like Almost how tidily this seems to wrap up. Yes, Krakoa loses a vote in favor of whatever you invoke. Um, but in general, like, it feels like they get off pretty easy for what Beast has done. And I don't know that that won't come back to bite them later. I think you're right, but I think there's two... And I kind of thought the same thing until I realized that I, I it's real easy to forget that Krakoa is an actual nation and that's kind of how it goes is for political expediency a lot of times you just kind of have to let things go yeah more than like a lot of saber rattling and like a lot of like exactly brinksmanship without actually like mm-hmm. yeah going at it but it also makes me wonder like as much as 
what is happening specifically with Hellfire Gala is becoming fuel for either... I mean, we've we've seen Orcus mentioned mm-hmm. again this week, and we've seen a lot about Orcus in various issues lately before Hellfire Gala. Um, and of course, they've been around since the beginning of the sort of Hickman era. But also, like, what we've seen in X-Corp, right, with rival companies wanting to challenge what the mutants are doing in the market. Like, if you are... The Finris twins teaming up to work on tech projects, and you have this entire nation that is built on telefloronics that is pissed off with Krakoa, I'm going to be scheduling some meetings, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there are so many places and so many pieces on the board that could, like, quietly turn this to their advantage. But any moment like this becomes sort of terrifying to me in that way, right? Other than the fact that I think that's kind of the whole thing with Planet Araco now is the idea that in some ways they're saying we we don't have to have your acknowledgement anymore. Like, we can just peace out of Krakoa and go to this other planet and then you have no say at all and we don't need you. And I think that's absolutely true in the now, Mm -hmm. but like everything else with this run, I think back to House of X and Powers of Ten. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, as sort of a a, a prophecy in a very like ancient Greek kind of way, the way that that colors every moment like this remains just astounding to me. Oh my god, I just realized where this is all going. So yeah, so the 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 mutants are all going to retreat to planet Araco, and everybody on Earth is going to get so mad at them that they all join forces against them, and it's going to the whole thing is just going to end up in red versus blue. <laughs> <laughs> see, I see it as actually like a third path. Like they mentioned early in like the X Force run that the uh, what is it, the Telefloronics? Yeah, yeah. Um, that that is a an alternate path to like a Sentinel program. And Mm -hmm. I think that by them breaking ties this way, it sort of allows a little bit of a resetting and a rebuilding of a new sort of rival thing. Like we've, you know, we Marvel loves having it's like it's weird analogous nations that have like big powerful things going on in it, Uh, like your your Wakandas, your Latverias, and so forth. This sort of like positions a new player on the board who is operating on a different trajectory, but towards the same endpoint that they're really afraid of. Like the, the rise of Nimrod and the rise of this, this sort of like technology that rivals uh, mutants, like mutant kinds, like own evolution is, is really interesting. And I think that with them pulling back, it gives them a minute to sort of like turtle up and like, uh, ed- like to, to use like a, like a Starcraft term, like uh, build up to tier three so that they can be ready uh, to go <laughs> at it again at some point in the future like this all all this is is like an armistice just in time for them to uh get like break out into an armed conflict that's like way worse yeah i I think that makes complete sense especially with the way that i mean hickman runs the x office as a whole so even where it's not an x book that i think this general structure applies but that way that hickman will like build out around what he's done like he'll build a core of a story and then you'll get another layer and another layer, and another layer, and each will kind of reach back into that core and pull ideas and build off of ideas. Um, It's why just a panel of the Illuminati in a Hellfire Gala issue feels important, because he wouldn't put that in an issue of X-Men if he didn't want people to think of 
the 150 issues of Avengers he wrote that were about the Illuminati. Right. And terraforming Mars and those ideas. I, I did like the other the other kind of subtle piece of this that was very easy to miss, which is the idea that, like, you know, uh, the the ambassador that Wolverine was fighting, right, that they come to a realization that, yeah, Wolverine didn't have any idea what was going on, and, like, not all mutants were part of this decision and feel this way. Yeah. That there is a, a level that there is understanding between them and they're not animosity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if to maintain this armistice, if like Beast ultimately needs to be turned over to them. I, I mean, I think whether it's in that form exactly or not, Beast has to at some point pay the piper, right? Yeah. There's no way that Beast gets to make it to the end of this era of X-Men without like answering for himself. And that may, that may well be it, right? It may be he becomes a state prisoner for that reason. Yeah. Uh, before we move on from Wolverine, one thing that uh, occurred to me while I was reading this, um, and apologies if this is not like a novel concept, because like I know they've addressed it a little bit. So Krakoa is a psychic parasite, um, and it has been brought up that all like having so many mutants prevents it from being uh, as disruptive as it was mm-hmm. when it first appeared in Giant Size X Men, um, having to right. like totally drain people. Um, but it it did occur to me that like Krakoa in its first appearance was able to guide like guided Cyclops to like fly the Blackbird back and like bring people on and so forth. And I'm wondering if noting that like the people of Araco are like a warrior culture and like the, the sort of the weird kind of culty vibes that we're getting out of Krakoa as it is. I'm wondering if there's an element of Krakoa being an intelligence that is now like taking control and possessing all mutant kind and shifting them towards some kind of more aggressive angle in order to propagate the mutant race, which is then it's food. That's, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it through exactly that lens. I think the closest version of a thing we see to that so far is Way of X. Because Way of X is talking about like Onslaught as this entity that is on the island and sort of mm-hmm. psychically weaponizing mutants losing sort of their value in life as such or or what have you like the ideas it's exploring i could see that being a really strong like companion argument too that like what if these external forces are not the only thing contributing to this what if here's a question also is does Araco possess that same need to for lack of a better word feed off of the the energy and if so, what happens now that Araco is planet sized? I think yeah. Araco is going to want them to like colonize and develop more of Mars to 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 like it. Like, there's a part of me that wonders, like, are mutants a crop that they are that they are growing? Um, <laughs> yeah, or or if not a crop, are are they shepherds and where it's flock, which can yeah. you know has lots of benefits, but eventually a lamb will get slaughtered. Yeah, which I mean, there has been this discussion uh, from the 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 House of X stuff of you know it being a symbiotic relationship between the two of them. Maybe it's not as symbiotic as it is parasitic. Who knows? Well, I mean, like because parasitic is on a tier with symbiotic. Like you know the the Vim, the venom symbiote, for example, like does feed off mm-hmm. its host, but it does provide assets as well. So like, right? It it is a weird. Th- thought and it, it occurred to me with this one specifically because it's like i wonder if like that could help explain some of beast not that that like that could also serve to like kind of um 
defang the story. Like I, you know, Beast made his choices, but if it if there is a a thing that is influencing everyone to sort of be more aggressive or be uh, xenophobic of humanity, um, that I don't know. It it just occurred to me. It's a possibility. I don't think it. Like I, I don't think it absolves Beast of what he has done. Right. But it might help explain it, and I I am afraid that a lesser writer yeah. might try to make it like I uh, know it's okay. He was being mind controlled story, which I don't want to have happen. Oh, I don't want that. Either. Well, and I, I mean, I think the other side of it too, and this is the angle Brian and I have talked about, and I, I certainly think what you're saying thematically absolutely makes sense. Like mutants as crops, when mutants' whole power source on Earth is, we have crops that fits. The other side of the Beast thing, though, is like so much of what we've seen of Beast in the last 10 years has been built around that idea of Dark Beast from the future as a villain, as this moralless evil scientist. So, like, in a way, this also feels like moving him closer to that. And I think that grounds grounds him outside of, oh, it's just the psychic interference of this island. Well, no, maybe some part of Dark Beast was always in him. Yeah, this, this is Machiavellian. Yeah. Yeah, which we've seen, like, both in the future timeline and his Age of Apocalypse timelines, like, some of the worst villains have been Hank McCoy. Yeah, let's talk about S.W.O.R.D. a little more. We've talked about it a little bit already. Oh, boy. Uh, Written by Al Ewing, art by Valerio Skitty, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by Ariana Maher, and design by Tom Moeller. This is Al Ewing doing space politics. I think if you're reading Guardians, you probably want to jump in for this issue because... Uh, There are some things about what's going on in the universe as a whole that will become super relevant, like a new currency structure. Yeah, and a new, not just currency, but also material that is, um, you know. Yes, it's it's the return of Mysterium from the first issue. <laughs> there you go. Um, um, no, it's it's what we saw them mining. No, at the I, beginning I understand. Of the I'm just yeah. saying it's it's you know it's the new adamantium slash vibranium slash whatever the new most important material. It's it's cryptocurrency. They've they've turned around and they've made mutant cryptocurrency. <laughs> they mine it slowly out of the uh, uh, very foundation of the universe and are trying to supplant the global economy or universal economy with it there you go yeah which i think is great like like finally someone is taking these crazy metals that marvel is full of and trying to be like all right so how is that going to destabilize space travel (laughs) yeah there you go but it's great because wakanda's ambassador is like we don't need your mutant metal we have our own metal right (laughs) i did love that i did love that Wakanda's yeah, so ambassador who looked a... just like Killraven, or not Killraven, uh, Killmonger from uh, the Killmonger. movie. Yes, <laughs> he does. Uh, yeah. So how about uh, how about Storm Queen of Mars? <laughs> I mean, very like pulp in a way. I dig right? right. Like anytime, anytime you describe someone as Queen of Mars, I'm gonna be like, nope. Okay. Uh, let's let's do some pulp storytelling. <laughs> that was very much the intention. Uh, because I believe she brands herself as the voice of Saul. Yeah. yeah. Regent of Mars, voice of Saul. <laughs> oh, boy. Speaker of our solar system. Mm, mm, <laughs> mm. That's going to be, uh, that's not going to be problematic for him at all. <laughs> well, and Doom is there's like, who who speaks for the, the solar system? Who speaks for Araka? Yeah. Like, do you have to ask? <laughs> the child yeah. of nature. And um, it's, you know, it's funny, like, looking at that 
interaction where it's doom and storm. Cause like when storm the first time she really had like a big power break, that was kind of like a dark Phoenix type story. That was a Dr. Doom story when he had like frozen mm-hmm. her in that form and she like broke out. So it's like nice to see those kind of like friction points. Like she embraces her inner goddess most when like for like, again, the stable, the saber rattling, like face to face with like mm-hmm. the, the, this asshole. She has to like really show like, no, you shut the fuck up. Cause I am storm. <laughs> It's like that ash, that last issue about how many knives does she have? That last issue of Marauders before Hellfire Gala. Like you'll never know because she doesn't need all of them ever. <laughs> um, I liked how we well, have. It's also great that she's. As I say, she's got the before I move on. She's got the connection to Doom, but she also has the connection to the other country that's not down with this, Wakanda. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she is their former queen. Yeah, and recently went. I mean, although it's not on the best of terms after going and stealing the sword, but, you know. Yeah. I mean, or the whole, like, T'Challa annulling their marriage during Avengers versus X-Men thing. Like, that's been rocky and contentious for a decade now, but, like, that is also rife with storytelling beats. So, so speak- potential at this point. Speaking of something that's very rocky and contentious, um... Oh. Ben Grimm? And this is not going to go well, and I have a prediction regarding this. Um, Magneto invites somebody to this uh, event who doesn't make it for the event, but comes afterwards to speak to him. Yeah. Um, Wanda. Yeah, I, I, I was like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I did not expect her to show up. No. Nope. At all. <laughs> no. And... um. You know, goes and says, you know, I'm not really your daughter. And he's like, yes, but y- you are like, you will always be my daughter, regardless of whether or not, you know, biologically. Um, And I think my prediction is this. This is the trial of Magneto. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, if If I had not seen those solicitations, I would not have or I would have been even more shocked. I, I, that clicked once I was like, Oh, this is the start of that point. But I was surprised that it was like, Oh, just at, at the end of sword, we're going to start that. Okay. Yeah. I, right. Yeah. Like I said, I, it, and you know, I was up until this point thinking it was going to be, he was, at, you know, in some way, whether he actually did or was just seen doing it, like was going to be accused of killing a human. Right. Um, well, that's very much what that cover art of a chalk outline implies. Yeah. Now here's the other Here's the other, um, this would really be a twist even beyond this, would be if the person that he kills is Wanda for some reason. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't know how I see that happening. I don't either, but, you know. Two issues, but. Or, or at least, and maybe it's him being accused of it, regardless. That would, wow. How would that go over with the mutant pot? That, that he has to be put on trial for killing Wanda, who so many of them hate and despise. Uh, but, you know, she was human, so. And the only <laughs> witness to their encounter, as we see in Way of X number three, is a very drunk nightcrawler who everybody knows was totally sauced and no one will believe. Correct. Yeah. I loved the way that Way of X handled it because it felt like such a bender, like following him, just like random spots like throughout. And we've been seeing him throughout all of the Hellfire Gala. And it's like nice to yeah. like. <laughs> get from his perspective like, so if you're only reading way of x it's you you know exactly as much as nightcrawler knows it is it's yeah it's that you know when you drink too much and you only have snapshot memories yeah a brownout or, yeah exactly 
when when Dazzler has to get onto you for preaching using her microphone during her performance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, beyond that, this issue is very much more of the the sort of same exploration of what's going on with Onslaught. Um, I do like the. I do like the sort of new context that this adds to make more mutants. The people are doing that and abandoning them. Yes. Yeah. That was dark right there. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the fact that um, Legion's method of um, intercourse may not be for everybody. (laughs) No, 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 (laughs) no. Yikes. Too much. All right. I am going to call an audible as we have just hit the three hour yes, mark. Yes, we have. We're going to skip. Is it still good? This that's week? a good call. Um, the answer is yes. It, it it was good. If we've been reading it and haven't talked about it, it's still good. It is. We're 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 not throwing shade. Shout out to Good Luck Number One. If you've been reading Witch Blood, check this out. It was very good. Same writer. Uh, Unless you're talking about throwing else? shade craft, though, I will say that is that. Shadecraft, excellent. We'll we'll double back to that on number five at the end of the arc. Uh, seeing if there's any other number one in there we need to shout out. Nope. Yeah, um, I think so. Very quickly, next week, we've got a bunch of annuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catwoman 2021 annual, uh, which is going to be dealing with the Father Valley character and his history. Teen Titans Academy 2021 yearbook. Uh, there were two other DC annuals scheduled that I think have been bumped a week to July 7th. Uh, Action Comics and... Flash. Flash. Uh, over at Marvel, we have the Black Cat annual, which is part three of Infinite Destinies, which has been fun so far. Uh, we have the United States of Captain America, number one of five. This is the five-issue miniseries. Main features are about someone hunting down uh, cap imposters or cap copycats across the country who are like just local heroes serving their own communities. I might say cappy cats. Oh, I was going to say cappy cats, but (laughs) I like copy caps best. Yeah, I think I do too. Um, there's our episode title. Uh, if you have been following this, then you know the backups are introducing those caps and that this first issue introduces the first gay Captain America, Aaron Fisher. Uh, we also have the print release of Infinite Frontier Secret Files and the 80th anniversary Green Arrow 100-page spectacular uh, with just an amazing-looking creative team of a bunch of writers and artists and colorists and letterers we love. Or as I call them, damn it, DC, why did you release another one of these 100-page spectacular anniversary issues with 12 covers that I have to buy? Yeah. Um, shout out to the Daniel Warren Johnson cover that inexplicably is Oliver Queen climbing the Empire State Building like King Kong, <laughs> being shot at by airplanes. Why? I don't know. I don't care. It's amazing and wow. That sounds like a seventies story. <laughs> I think it's the fifties. Oh, could be. Yeah. Okay. Could be. Could be fifties. Uh, case plug away. Okay. Uh, so most of my stuff is at certainpov.com. I uh, I do a bunch of shows there. I also. I am the one posting all of our YouTube content. So uh, if you like comic stuff, and particularly if you like the Hyperion conversation we had before, I do a series on our YouTube channel called Superman Analogs. 
last week was part one of my Hyperion two-parter because Hyperion has had so many different permutations. I didn't feel like I could do it in one video. So part two is dropping right before this episode comes out. Uh, so check those out. Also, I host Another Pass, which is a movie analysis podcast where we look at movies that um, we found fascinating but flawed, movies that we liked but didn't quite hit the mark or we wanted to like and they, you know, they didn't live up to our expectations and discuss like what could have been done at the time of production on how to make it better. And then every five episodes, we look at a movie that actually did course correct, movies that like found themselves in the edit or movies that had major rewrites uh, somewhere in production or or, or even if it was just like, well, they were about to go through with shooting with the, with cast X and then like ended up recasting a bunch. And like, thank God they did, uh, like, say, uh, Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox. Uh, so uh, those are the types of movies we talk on there. I also am the host of Men of Steel. Alex, you were recently on talking about Superman, the animated series season two, which was uh, peak Superman. Yes. Uh, so that was some great stuff. Uh, J. Mike Folson and I host that where we, we like talking about Superman and Superman adjacent stuff. Um, and then I'm also the dungeon master for Scruffy Nerf Herders, which is our uh, Star Wars D&D game. Uh, currently, we are doing mini arcs with different podcast groups coming in, uh, guesting as characters. So we're in between arcs at the moment, but uh, we'll be back soon for that. Um, that's all at certainpov.com. You can find me on Twitter at Case Aiken or on uh, Instagram at Quetzalcoatl5 because I am both a mythology nerd and a Legion of Superheroes nerd. Uh, so uh, come, <laughs> come find my stuff. I'm, I'm trying to do fun stuff. Uh, everywhere, but certainpov.com is the main one. There you go. All right. Well, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for yes. having me. It's been a, a blast. Like this has been exactly what I need, which is like ma making it hashtag content has allowed me to like force myself to be like caught up on comics, which is hard as an adult. <laughs> yes, that is, is. That is my trick. Got to read it by Sunday morning. Indeed. Well, I will spare everyone the rest of the usual outro. Uh, Again, thanks, Case, for joining us. And we will be back next time. Until then, I'm Alex. I'm Brian. And I'm Case. Go read comics. certainpov.com.